This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. So, um, actually, Bob is so great. He, uh, he was like, we need a, uh, a... Have you guys ever you guys met Bob Forrest? You all know who he is? Oh, yeah. oh he's amazing, man. He's like MacGyver. <laughs> he's like, we need a... Uh, we need a temporary mounting device for this. So he came up with a piece of cardboard and he screwed it into the pulpit right here, which is pretty awesome. So, or whatever you want to call this thing. Podium, podium, lectern. Yeah. For me, it's a pulpit because everywhere I go, I'll be preaching. So, all right. So as I was saying, to get it on the recording, um, this, is the, this is kind of the course that's oriented towards confirmation, but we've restructured it so that it's, more widely available to the church. So we're asking people, hey, if you're interested in any particular topic, come to that week, and that's the only one you have to come to. But if you want to be confirmed, you got to go to all five, or talk to me if there's some reason why you can't be at all five, and we can work something out, including listening to the, uh, the talks on this thing, which, actually, not this thing. You won't listen to it on this thing, but you'll listen to it on the podcast. See, I am not a technological profession. Um, so this first week, um, what we're doing is sort of exploring Anglican Christianity. Like, what does it mean to follow Jesus in the Anglican way? So, I mean, the first thing that I want to argue is that everyone who follows Jesus does so according to a specific way. There is no non-traditioned way of following Jesus. You can't escape traditions because you're a human being. And so therefore you live an encultured life. You live within a particular time, among a particular people, and Christianity has taken shape around you in specific ways, right? In very specific traditions. So Anglicanism is one of these. And I want to argue it's, a, it's a quite a powerful one, right? I mean, when, when you think about um, people who have, illustrious people who have talked about this kind of thing, I mean, you got C.S. Lewis, right? An, an Anglican among Anglicans. Uh, and actually, really interestingly, C.S. Lewis is loved, well-beloved by evangelicals of all stripes, but he himself was a very Anglo-Catholic churchman. Okay? So his, his churchmanship was very high. You know? uh, one of the expressions Anglicans sometimes like to use is, he's very high up the candle, which means he, he liked fussy ceremonial quite a bit. Okay? And he talks about that sometimes. Right? If, you, if you get deep into C.S. Lewis, you get deep into the weeds there, uh, you'll find that he's, he's very, very high on the... On his churchmanship, but you know he he wrote this this famous book. You, probably, you might have read it before, uh, *Mere Christianity*. Yeah. So he uses the analogy of a hallway, right? If you're if Christianity is a hallway, then uh, you can't actually live in the hallway. You have to eventually go into one of the rooms. Okay, and one of the rooms is a very specific way of following Jesus in a form of Christianity. Um, my friend uh, Father Thomas McKenzie down in Nashville uh, has published a very good book. Uh, it's a, kind of an introduction to Anglicanism, which I highly commend to all of you, called The Anglican Way. And he uses the, uh, the analogy of like a wine glass, okay? So if like, if Jesus is the wine, appropriately, you know, appropriately enough, if Jesus is the wine, you can't like hold the wine in your hand. You need a glass to hold the wine in. And so you, you might think of Anglicanism or Roman Catholicism or, you know, um, various Baptist, Baptistic traditions, uh, as being, or Presbyterianism, or whatever it is, as the cup that holds that wine. Um, and so, you know, Anglicanism is a very nice cup. Not the only cup you could use. There's lots of different kinds of cups you could use. But Anglicanism is a cup, and it's, it's, a, it's a good one. It's a sturdy one. 
Um, so that's kind of what we're going to be talking about tonight. Is that somewhat clear to everyone? Helpful? Not helpful? Yeah? Okay. Um, so the way that I thought I would go about doing this, and uh, I'm really just adopting or adapting this from the new members course, where I was tasked with doing the history and theology of Anglicanism in 30 minutes. Like, okay, I know this is like an ancient pop culture analogy, but who here remembers the Micro Machine Man? You, okay, I'm only one person in this room? I feel ancient and decrepit now. Well, I'm ancient and decrepit with you. <laughs> okay, but, you know, but tell, tell them about the Micro Machine Man. What did the Micro Machine Man do? Like, I just remember the commercial was this big guy, and he had these teeny weeny little... I remember him looking like Mario from Super Mario yeah, Brothers. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right, right. He had that kind of appearance thing, and he talked really fast. Super it was like fast. the fine print guy. Anyway, but that's what I sounded like at that, at that course, like blew everybody's hair back. So I'm going to basically do the same thing, but kind of a slightly expanded version and much, much more relaxed and kind of a slower, but still, it's still going to be a fire hose. So it's going to be a lot of information, but... Uh, but hopefully, you know, less, um, less crazy fast than at that new members course. Okay, so you've got, hopefully by now, all of you have that little sheet that has the Anglican top 14. It's a very unsatisfying number, isn't it? I mean, the Anglican top 14 doesn't really have a ring to it, but, you know, I, I was in a hurry. I couldn't come up with a 15th one on the fly, so there you, there you have it. It's the Anglican top 14. Um, so we'll begin with sort of the earliest origins of English Christianity. So... My basic argument is that in order to understand Anglicanism as a tradition and as a form of spirituality, you, can, you have to distinguish between Anglicanism as an institution, which begins in the 16th century, and Anglicanism as a spiritual ethos or as a tradition of spirituality. Hey, Nancy, come on. Yeah. Um, hey, d- d- where are the rest of them? Okay, there we go. Yeah, just make sure you grab one of the handouts. Um, so we've got to distinguish between Anglicanism as an institution and Anglicanism as a spiritual ethos or as a tradition of spirituality. Um, and so what I'm going to be talking about here and for the next little bit is really uh, Anglicanism as a, uh, a tradition of spirituality. And if we understand it in that way, then it actually it goes back far behind the 16th century all the way to the second century. So we don't know, actually, I mean, you know, the, the origins of Christianity in Britannia are, uh, are kind of lost in the... the uh, you know, will of the wisps of history, um, but so we we, don't, we actually don't know when the earliest missionaries arrived in England. All that we do know of that history, we learn from an eighth an eighth century Benedictine monk named the Venerable Bede, um, and he wrote, uh, you know, among many things. And this guy was like, you know, this guy was a bookworm if ever there was one. Um, you know, one of the things about Benedictine, and I'll, I'll explain this in a minute. One of the things about Benedictinism as a monastic tradition is they value. Um, they value reading, so common reading and also study. Okay, so um, so every uh, Benedictine monastery had a scriptorium or a, a writing space where you would you would copy manuscripts, right? And uh, and you would also you know do a bunch of reading in these classical sources and ancient Christian sources. So you actually had some some in the, in the bigger uh, Benedictine monasteries some very learned people. Okay, um, Bede was a very was well regarded as being a very learned monk. Uh, so he wrote a lot. Uh, he wrote a lot of biblical commentary mostly, but he also wrote this very helpful book called uh, The Ecclesiastical History of the English People, which you can find for like pennies. You know, if you've got a stack of nickels, you can get it on Amazon. Um, so it's worth reading if you're interested in going a little bit deeper. But what he says is that in 156, during the reign of Marcus Antoninus, a British king named Lucius wrote Pope Eleutherus in Rome requesting instruction. 
And Bede, Bede writes that this pious request was quickly granted, and the Britons received the faith and held it peacefully in all its purity and fullness until the time of the Emperor Diocletian. So there's a nice bow on that, right? English, English spirituality goes all the way back to the second century. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, so Emperor Diocletian was the first emperor to, uh, to enact a widespread, multi-regional persecution of the church, okay? Um, and his reign was 284 to 305. So end of second century, beginning of the fourth, sorry, end of the third century, beginning of the fourth century, okay? So in 302 and 3, he unleashed the most universal persecution Christians ever faced from that time forward. And Bede tells us that during this persecution, which again was in lots of, and it was a universal thing, it was all throughout the empire. So uh, it included this region of the, which the Romans called Britannia, which was the English Isles. Um, and uh, so, so Bede tells us that during that persecution, there was a British pagan named Alban. And Alban uh, sheltered a priest. This priest was on the run. He was being persecuted. And so Alban sheltered him. And he was so impressed by his way of life, by his piety, by his faith, that he converted himself. And then when the soldiers came to find this priest, he represented himself as being that priest. Okay? So in other words, he took that priest's place uh, and was put to death, as executed. Uh, and Bede goes on to describe the various miracles that, were, uh, that occurred at his execution, including, you know, he said, I am thirsty, an imitation of Jesus, and a spring bubbled at his feet. Uh, my favorite is that when he was actually executed, uh, the first executioner couldn't do it, like his axe handle fell off, and so finally they got, a, they got a soldier with a sword to do it, and as the soldier chopped off the, uh, uh, the Alvin's head, um, his eyes fell off. <laughs> This is funny. I mean, come on, laugh at that. That's funny. It's like, that's incredible gallows humor. <laughs> okay, uh, anyway. What is the significance of that? No, it's not, it's not significant except insofar as, you know, these histories uh, have a bit of embellishment in them, I think. I mean, the you know. falling out. Is there a significance to that? Oh, no, I don't know. Uh, there probably is, but B doesn't go into detail. He just reports. So, anyway. Okay, so Alban is the first Christian martyr that's recorded in, um, in Britannia. But the persecution actually did not, did not stop the church. It didn't, didn't squelch the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. Uh, it kept progressing and getting bigger and growing, becoming more established, so that by 314, so again, we said the persecution was 302 to 303. By 314, this young English church is sufficiently well organized that it could send representatives to the Council of Arles, which was convened to decide what to do with apostates from the faith during the reign of Diocletian of which there were many Britons, right? So they, were, they, they went to participate in this conference to decide what to do with these people. So the church is, the church is pretty well organized by the early part of the 4th century. Uh, so it's, a, it's an ancient church. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, it's interesting to evaluate then, like, what kind of church is it? What are its characteristics? Uh, and so I want to go, this is number two now. You're on number two, if you're following along at home. Uh, is that it is a deeply monastic church. It's a church characterized by a profound... Uh, presence and influence of monasticism. And there are two different sources to this monasticism. One is Celtic and the other is Roman. Now, you all have probably heard a great many things said about Celtic spirituality. Like 95% of those are like just ab absolutely false. Like there's just nothing to any of those. Um, there was, you know, there was a fad in the late 90s. Like everything Celtic was good, right? So it was like, you know, this, you know, it's earth affirming and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, all that stuff. And, and some of that, like a limited amount of that, can be drawn from, uh, from the, the, the Celtic sources that we have. Uh, one of the difficulties about knowing anything about Celtic monasticism is that the Celts, like, didn't write anything down. 
Like, <laughs> like they just really didn't do that. They, they, had, they had a profound value for oral tradition, which is like great for them, but not for us. You know, like to actually know, um, to know what, what, uh, what they actually were thinking or doing. Um, but we have, these, we have these snippets of poetry that are quite beautiful, actually. So we know that it was a, a, a fairly lyrical form of Christianity. Um, there's a, I actually have a shirt uh, with, a, with a, a poem from St. Bridget of Kildare. Uh, it's, a, it's an awesome shirt. It's from monkrock.com, which I, I love this website. Their, their motto is, uh, you don't have to be a monk to live like one. <laughs> so there you go. Um, highly recommended. Um, you can get a shirt with a Benedictine medallion on it. It's pretty dope. Um, anyway, I got a shirt that has St. Bridget of Kildare, and, and her, her, she has a famous prayer where she says, I, you know, I, I wish, uh, I, I long, I long for there to be a great ale feast for the King of Kings. I desire to be there with the whole household of God, like in, indulging in this feast, essentially. So, you know, she has a great love of beer and a great love of feasting and all of that. So it's, a, you know, I, I do think it's probably a, a you know, creation-affirming and a lively and lyrical faith. So attractive in a great many ways. But so Celtic monasticism was one wing. The other is Roman uh, and especially Benedictine, which we'll get to in just a minute. So let me talk very briefly about the history of monasticism in of which this, you know, British version participated. So, um, so in the 4th century... Christianity becomes a legal religion in the empire, okay? This happens in AD 316, so just after that Council of Arles that I talked about, uh, the Emperor Constantine, along with his co-regent uh, Licinius in the eastern part of the empire, come together and they, they issue what's called the Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan basically says, all right, we're not going to persecute Christians anymore. Like, we're not going to force anybody to become a Christian, but we're not persecuting any of them, any of them anymore. So it becomes a legal religion. And, uh, and also a, a sort of favored religion, because Constantine, do um, you guys know the story of Constantine? He receives a vision from the sky, which is a, which is a cross, and, it's, and a voice from heaven says, by this sign, conquer. So he emblazons the cross. This is, he's definitely not a Christian by this point, guys. Like, he is absolutely a pagan at this point. But he emblazons upon the, sh- the shields of all of his soldiers the cross, right? And then he goes into battle against one of his, one of his rivals, and he conquers Right, so he's like, "Huh, that's a strong guy," <laughs> you know. So, uh, so he begins to favor the Christians. Okay, so when this happens, there's a number of folks, particularly around the uh, around northern Egypt, uh, the city of Alexandria, and a couple of other uh, you know northern Egyptian cities, begin to see a kind of downgrade in the in the behavior and the belief of the people around them. So they flee to the desert. Okay. And in the desert, they begin to live this profoundly ascetic life, and they live as hermits, okay? So their, their whole goal, the whole goal of their entire life is to fight demons and, and to, to um, do battle for their own souls uh, in the desert. So it's a, it's a, it's a strange um, pattern of life. I mean, it's a strange way of living, um, but, it's, but it's what kind of, it, was, it was kind of the response to this downgrading of faith. And, it, and there were so many of these people, so many of these hermits that went out into the desert in Egypt that it was said that the desert became a city, okay? And the most famous of these became connected to famous bishops. Uh, the most famous of them was a guy named St. Anthony. You heard of St. Anthony? St. Anthony of Egypt, yeah? Well, the reason St. Anthony became famous is that he, he became connected to Athanasius. Anybody know Athanasius? Yeah, Athanasius was the, we're going to call him the theological architect of the First Council of Nicaea in 325. Uh, so, so Anthony was connected to, to Athanasius and deeply loyal to him. So Athanasius wrote a biography of St. Anthony okay, in the desert. 
So uh, under Athanasius's um, influence, desert monasticism gained sort of a really interesting form of odd credibility, right? I mean, these became deeply holy men, deeply revered men. And so people would actually go out into the desert to meet with these hermits and get spiritual direction. Be like, Abba, give me a word. And he'd be like, here's a sentence. Live this for the rest of your life. Don't ever come back until you've done that thing, right? Um, or people would come to them in order to settle property disputes. It was like, oh, here's a holy man. Like Solomon, he will, he will settle this case for us, right? Uh, so weird, weird stuff like that, right? But it's because of the, the increasing influence of these monks. Um, so um, the, the, the dramatic shift happened when a, a former soldier, a former Ro- Roman centurion, a guy named Pacomius, joins these monks in the desert. And he decides that being a hermit is probably not the best way to do this and that it could be more influential in the church if it was organized according to groups. So Pacomius takes everything that he learned as a centurion uh, in the the, Roman legion and applies it to as an organizational scheme for monasticism. Uh, So he develops a common life, which he calls the Kenobium, which is the it's just the Roman word for uh, the Latin word for um, a military barracks. Right? So you can imagine the kind of life that this was. That this, that this was. It was deeply regimented. Uh, it was deeply ascetical. And, and the, the, the fight was not exterior. I mean, you're no longer fighting, you know, uh, gothic, you know, gothic hordes or whatever. Uh, what you're fighting is your, like all of your interior impulses, all of your interior demons, right, that are, that are waging war against the, the work of Christ in you. So that was, you know, as monks living together uh, around a common rule. Okay, so these monks would take take uh, you know oaths that eventually became totally famous, right? They became the basis for what monasticism is and is understood as, which is poverty, chastity, and obedience. Okay, so you own nothing now. Like you're a monk, you own nothing. Uh, you also are never going to have sex again. So you can just let that go. You know, you're taking a, you're taking an oath of chastity and you're taking an oath of obedience to your abbot. The abbot becomes essentially Christ to you, like. Whatever he says is what you have to do, okay? Now, Pacomius's model turns out to be extremely popular, okay? And so there's a number of people who, who take it up and bring it into the West. Um, so, you know, this is still, still thinking about Egypt now, but this comes into Europe via um, a, a number of different people who went out to see what Pacomius was doing. Um, so uh, one of those guys is a guy named John Cassian, but another more famous person is Benedict of Nursia. Anybody heard of Benedict of Nursia? Familiar with this guy? Anyone? No. Anyone? Rule of St. Benedict? Yeah? Rule of St. Benedict. Okay. Of course, you are, right? This is a lady who actually wrote a book on, you know, how monasticism should be applied to contemporary life, um, which I haven't read yet, which I want to, though. It's all good. Um, it's all good. Yeah. So to, this, to these, these oaths of, of, um, of, sorry, poverty, chastity, and obedience, Benedict adds a fourth, which is stability. And the reason he does this is he looks around and he sees these monks— who, you know, they'll like, they'll be in one place and they'll, you know, get tired of things and they'll get tired of the work and get tired of the people and then they leave, right? So he thinks that this is short-circuiting the work of Christ in them. So he, he insists that all his monks take a vow of stability so they can never leave unless they're released by the community. And in particular, the abbot, which, is ne- which hardly ever happens, right? Because, you know, the abbot is, is kind of like, looks at your life and is very suspicious that you would want to leave this environment, right? That there's, there's probably uh, reasons that are not good that you would want to do that. So, you know, in his rule, Benedict condemns all of these, what he calls them gyrovagues, people who are always on the move, right? Monks who go from one place to another. Um, so um, this rule of stability, it becomes 
massively important in the history of the West, like as a kind of providential but human accident, okay? Because what happens is, you know, the, like Rome only survives in the West until uh, 410. Um, actually, it survives a little bit longer than that. But in its sort of preeminent imperial form, it only survives until 410 when Alaric the Goth enters the gates of Rome, smashes them down, and burns the whole place to the ground, okay? Uh, and St. Jerome is living in the Egyptian desert, uh, if you ever heard of St. Jerome, he, he writes a letter in which he says, if Rome can fall, what can be safe? You know, it's just this traumatic incident for everyone who experiences anything around this, okay? But because these Benedictines were committed to stability, everything is like fragmenting around them, but they're just like these little islands of sanity and order in the midst of all this chaos, okay? And so because they're just there and they're there forever, people begin to settle around the monasteries and like whole cities grow around the monasteries, right? And as learning is lost, you know, all of the institutions of, of, of learning in Rome are all decimated uh, during this process of, of disintegration of the empire. Uh, but guess where the new centers of learning spring up, right? They spring up in these Benedictine monasteries. And again, this was, I haven't mentioned this yet, or actually I mentioned it earlier, but Benedict had a value for, for learning. He had a value for reading. So he wanted all of his monks to be literate. He wanted all of his monks to read. He wanted all of his monks to write. He wanted all of his monks to preserve the literature of Christianity. And then, you know, in the process of preserving the literature of Christianity, they also preserved ancient classical literature. So the reason you can still read Cicero or Quintilian or Aristotle today is because a Benedictine monk copied that manuscript for you. Say thank you to a monk next time you see him. Yeah. So it, there's a famous book that came out like uh, a couple decades ago by Thomas Cahill called uh, How the Irish Saved Civilization. You guys ever heard of that one? Or is it, am I, this is another ancient pop culture reference. <laughs> yeah. somebody, somebody has, all right. So, the, but the, the point of this book is basically it was monks. It was the monks. They did it. Um, so, again, thank you, monk. All right, so um, this monasticism becomes incredibly important all over Europe, but uh, especially in the English church, okay? And it's, it's Irish monks and it's Benedictine monks doing it at the same time. So the history of Irish monasticism is that uh, you, you've got a guy named uh, St. Finian of Clonard, who in 548 moved from Wales, what is, what is now understood as Wales, to Ireland. And he begins planting a monastery there. Uh, and then out of that monastery, um, there is uh, a guy named, let's see here, Aidan. Nope. First, it's Columba. So, so out of that monastery is a, a guy named Columba. And Columba has a, uh, he's got a little problem, which is that he got involved in a blood feud with uh, another family. And uh, so he was, as, he was actually like, you know, you're either going to kill you or you can leave. So it was a commissioning to go found other monasteries, but the commissioning was, you know, we're going to kill you if you don't. So uh, he moves to a, an island called Iona, which becomes massively important uh, in the history of monasticism because it becomes a sending place for other monasteries. And uh, so monks go from Iona to all over, all over Northumberland, and they, they settle uh, these different... Um, Irish monasteries all over the all over the East English coast and that's sort of what become what would become Scotland right so basically from Edinburgh to York these monasteries are, are founded like you know hundreds of them really um, over the course of the next couple of centuries at the same time that this is happening um, the Pope who's named Gregory the Great gets an inclination to send a missionary to uh, to England and this is because he's walking uh, along the wharfs and he sees these striking. So Gregory the Great is, you know, definitely a Mediterranean guy with brown hair and black eyes, right? Uh, so he sees these 
slaves who have been brought to the wharf and they have blonde hair and blue eyes. And he's just like, whoa, like, who are these people? Uh, so somebody that's with him says, oh, they're angles. And he's this famous line. He's like, he says, angles, they must be angels, you know, and it's just like really bad pun. Um, I mean, it's a serious groaner, right? I mean, it's as bad as, uh, as Bishop Grant's paradox. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else is like, oh, when he said that. But you remembered it, didn't you? <laughs> uh, anyway, so, um, right. So he, he, gets, he gets a mind to send a missionary to the Angles. And so he sends Augustine, who becomes Augustine of Canterbury, up there. And then he realized, and Augustine writes back and he says, oh, hey, there's like a lot of Christians here, boss, <laughs> already. Uh, but they're not submitted to, Rome, to the Roman uh, way of understanding Christianity, which basically looks like, uh, when you hear what it consists of, you're going to be like, what? So uh, the monks, the Irish monks, were tonsured differently than the Roman monks were. Um, so the Irish monks had the tonsure. You know what a tonsure is, right? Yeah. yeah, it's a haircut, right? Uh, so their tonsure was here, right? So like to the front and here. Uh, and then, but the Roman way was right in the middle, right? So you're seeing these medieval pictures of medieval friars and stuff like that who got a tonsure right here in the back of their crown. That was the Roman way of doing it, right? Uh, so that, that wasn't happening, and, and Gregory was not too happy about that. Um, and then uh, the date of Easter was different, okay? So, um, so two different dates of Easter, well, you got a little problem, you got to solve this, but, but it doesn't seem like a huge deal, right? But it, what it does actually reflect is two different ways of of organizing your common life. One is incredibly hierarchical, right? So it's like everything is uniform. In Rome, everything is uniform. And it uh, has the illusion of continuing to be that way today. Although if you actually spend any time looking at the Roman church, you're like, oh, this is like, this is, this is everything. This is like the whole kitchen sink, right? But it's, but it's you know, you get the magisterium, which kind of dictates in the, the code of canon law, which is like this fat that says like, here's how we're supposed to do things, right? Um, so this is a very hierarchical, uh, way of organizing your common life, whereas Irish monasticism was was a, a communitarian way of organizing life, right? It's a much more uh, diffuse and decentralized way of deciding things. Okay, um, but uh, for reasons that I won't get into because they, they're not very interesting, um, one uh, English king decides in favor in Northumbria of the, uh, the Roman way of doing things, and so he submits the church to Rome, Therefore, Rome gets more influence, and then eventually there's a synod, the Synod of Whitby in the, in the uh, early 7th century that uh, basically rules in favor of Rome. So, okay, so the Benedictine way of doing monasticism becomes normative thereafter, okay? But it doesn't change the fact that, uh, actually, the Synod of Whitby is 663, in case you're interested in the date. Um, but Benedictinism becomes the preeminent form of monasticism in uh, England thereafter. Okay, so monasticism, deeply important. And then after the, the uh, 10th century, there are Benedictine renewal movements. You probably heard of some of them, the Cistercians. Uh, and then after that, there's mendicant friars that appear in England. There's the Franciscans and the Dominicans. So if you know anything about monasticism at all, you've heard of all these different things. So all of them make their appearance in England. Uh, in fact, you know, in, uh, in Cambridge, there's a place called Black, Blackfriars, you know, uh, it's named after the Dominican monks because of their habits, right? Uh, yeah, so that's monasticism. On to point number three. Unless anybody has any questions about monasticism, of course. Any questions? Everybody good? Feeling okay? Okay. All right, point number three, universities. Um, so do you all know that like, Christianity invented the university? Is that like a familiar fact to you? There are places of learning throughout ancient history 
But only in the 11th century does there come into existence something that can reasonably be referred to as a university with the divisions of liberal arts, medicine, and theology. Like that's like the fact that there would be different divisions of study, like and the connection between um, a course of life and that form of study um, is for the first time comes upon the scene in the in the 11th century. Uh, and the first one of these universities emerges out of a cathedral school in Paris. It becomes the University of Paris. Um, and a cathedral school. Huh? Huh? I mean, I thought it was in Bologna. Uh-uh. No, Bologna's after. Nope. Really? Yep. Paris is the very first one. Uh, and then actually the second one is uh, Oxford. But Padua is very close. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, but there's a, whole, there's a whole bunch of them that emerge almost around the same time because of the success of the Parisian model. Um, okay, so first one happens in Paris, and the second one, the very second one, is Oxford in the 11th century. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, there's the foundation of Cambridge, okay? Um, and what's interesting about these, uh, about these universities is they very quickly become teaching centers for monks, okay? Not Benedictines, because Benedictines have their own centers of learning that are more decentralized and diffuse, but the friars, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, the Carmelites, the Augustinians, all these different monastic orders become teachers within these, these institutions of higher learning. Um, and the reason it happens this way is that, you know, especially for the Franciscans, well, especially for the Dominicans, really, uh, the, the, the Franciscans and the Dominicans are all or both oriented towards preaching. The Dominicans come into existence in order to combat a particular heresy. Um, the Albigensians. This is, a, this is a really bad joke. You want to hear a really bad monk joke? <laughs> Come on, you know you want to. You know you want to. Okay, all right. What's the same between uh, the Dominicans and the Jesuits? What? They both were uh, enacted. They both were, came into existence in order to combat a heresy. The Dominicans were, uh, were designed to, and they came into existence in order to combat the heresy of Albigensianism. It's a kind of dualism uh, of body and soul. Uh, and the Jesuits came into existence to combat Protestantism. Okay? All right. Well, what's different between them? Who's ever heard of an Who's ever heard of an Albigensian? Oh, it's so bad. Right. Okay. Spent a lot of time with Dominicans. Yeah. They tell that joke? Yeah, okay. Uh, I got it from the internet, as, uh, as most things that I know, I guess. Uh, yeah, this is a guy named Arthur Rosman, who is a, a, a hoot, and he tells that joke. Anyway, all right. So, um, so because the Dominicans come into existence in order to combat heresy, their big thing is preaching, preaching orthodoxy, okay? So what they, what they realize very quickly is, oh, we need a way to train these people. And so the universities become that. The Franciscans similarly are coming into existence in order to preach the gospel. Uh, and so they realize, oh, we need, we, need, we need a place to train our Franciscan friars. So the universities become that as well. So the Dominicans and the Franciscans become uh, very, very important in the, the whole history of Oxford and Cambridge. And there's, uh, you know, and the, the influence of, of, the, of these universities is incalculable, right? Uh, I mean, they, they, uh, there's just tons and tons of uh, illustrious Oxbridgians, right? I mean, you got Duns Scotus and William of Ockham and John Wycliffe and Roger Bacon and Sir Thomas More and Erasmus of Rotterdam and all these really famous people in the Western canon, as it were, but all the way into the present day, okay? Uh, and because of the con close connection between training for ministry and the university, Anglicanism has always had this profound value for learned clergy. We want people who preeminently and above all things understand and know how to read and interpret and preach the scriptures, right? But also the history of the church and systematic theology and all, all the other disciplines that have emerged over the course of the last 
nine centuries, right, uh, since the development of the university. Um, so this is an important feature that continues to sort of have a thread of continuity. Uh, and, and you'll understand how monasticism is important in just a minute, and I'll, I'll make it clear. Okay. All right. So any questions about universities? Okay. Okay. We'll move on to the English Reformation. If y'all don't have any questions, we're going to finish quick. It's all right. Um, so let's talk about institutional Anglicanism, right? Remember I said we need to talk about Anglicanism as an institution and English spirituality? Um, now we're going to move into talking about institutional Anglicanism. Okay, so in order to talk about institutional Anglicanism, we have to talk about the Reformation. Who can tell me, when you hear the Reformation, what do you think of? What jumps into your mind? Luther. Luther. Yeah. What did Luther do? He nailed something to a door. We're not, we're not quite sure what it says, but he nailed something to a door. Uh, what else? Okay, that is what it says, actually. Well done, sir. <laughs> he translated the Bible into a common language. He did. Okay, so so we've got so far we've got anti-indulgences. So uh, against an oppressive church, we've got um, uh, we've got the importance of the vernacular. So translating things into language people can understand. What else? Preaching the word. Huh? Preaching the word. Preaching the word. Uh, yes, elevation of the liturgy of the word relative to the, the liturgy of the Eucharist. Yeah. Priesthood of all believers, yes. All Christians are on mission by virtue of baptism. All have this calling, not just priests. There's no vicarious priesthood. Yes, out with that. Salvation by grace. Salvation by grace through what? Faith. faith. Absolutely. Yes, the centrality of faith in, uh, in, uh, in salvation and the centrality of grace. I, I don't know if anybody would have actually rejected grace, but the way they would have understood it would have been very different than the way that the Reformers understood it. Yep. Um, what else? Okay, well, now we're into the English Reformation. Why well, you got to bring Henry into it? I'm going to in a minute, though. I'm going, I'm going to in a minute, though. Anti-papism, right. So, again, uh, there, there, there are certain practices that are associated with Rome, the, the universal primacy of the Pope, for instance, that are, that are rejected everywhere. And, and that goes further in some cases, right, in the Continental Reformation, so in mainland Europe. The Continental Reformation goes further and goes away with episcopacy altogether. Why do we need bishops? I don't see them anywhere in the text. That word episcopos doesn't mean that. It means overseer. So we don't need that office. And plus, Peter refers to himself as both a presbyter and an episcopos. So those are the same thing. So, you know, we just, well, all we need is presbyters. All we need is pastors. We don't need bishops. So that goes further than the Continental Reformation. Yeah. So Mary there's... Clergy. Married clergy. Absolutely. Hey, you guys are... Are on it. I don't even have to say anything. Y'all understand the Reformation already. It's all good. Uh, what's that? Oh, yes. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, the medieval churches were all lushly ornamented with red screens depicting various uh, episodes from Christ's life and uh, images of the saints and the windows and, and statuary everywhere and all this kind of stuff. And the Reformers said, uh, what about that second commandment? What about that second commandment? Um, so, so uh, a move to uh, whitewash the churches, to get rid of all those images because they violate the command against graven images. Um, yeah, absolutely. The kind of classic turn. Yes. Um, again, uh, I mentioned that guy, Arthur Rosman. He's a Roman Catholic, but I still like him. And uh, he, uh, he, he, had a, he had a hilarious, he, he does these memes, you know, you guys know memes on the internet, right? He has a funny one. It's a, it's a picture of John Calvin's face and it says, this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> I mean, even if you're an iconoclast, you gotta love that one, dude. That is fantastic. <laughs> Zing. Yeah. All right. 
Um, all right, so you guys understand the Reformation. I don't need to go any further. Uh, there's, there's a couple of other uh, practices that I would single out, right? I mean, one of them would be the practice of pluralism, okay? So this is where, uh, and it's, it's closely connected to a, uh, a practice called simony, which is the buying of church office, right? So it's like you, you, you can just put your, you can put your bid in, and, you know, the, the office goes to the highest bidder. Uh, but that person, uh, you know, who actually is, is, gets the title of that office in the church doesn't actually have to perform the offices of that church. What you do is, it's a little, little you know, uh, trade secret, right? You hire a curate, pay him less than you actually get from the office, and he performs the duties while you get to live in whatever, wherever it is, right? So, uh, you know, the, the cardinals, the office of cardinal, the, um, I think maybe like two of them lived in, actually lived in Italy at the time, right? So um, this is, and they all had C's in Italy. I mean, that was like their thing. They were all bishops in Italy, but none of them lived there. So, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's kind of a problem, right? When you think about that, like, you're not actually getting, you're not actually getting pastors. Like, you don't have, you don't have um, bishops who are pastors or priests who are pastors because you have all this, you have all this simony and pluralism happening. So, that, oh, sorry, pluralism, I should say, is simply that you can have more than one title. So it's like, you know, you can just, if, 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 if every one of these offices is associated with a tithe, right? You, 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 uh, you get a certain amount of money from the office, Okay. That's given to you. So, you know, you, you buy one over here in England. You buy one over here in, you know, Versailles. And, you know, it's like uh, you can just have five offices. Why not? Because you can just hire a curate to perform all the duties in each one. It doesn't matter necessarily that the curate actually uh, can read. right? It doesn't matter as long as he can get up there and, and do the thing. Right. Um, so. Um, so th- this is another one of the one of the practices, one of the abuses that's going on in the Roman church. That reformers look at and quite, you know. Uh, I think quite rightly say this is unacceptable. This is like absolutely besmirching Christ's church. Um, so the English Reformation is connected to this, and none of the, no English person would have thought who was who was oriented oriented towards reform would have thought of him or herself as an Anglican in the 16th century. Uh, they would have thought of themselves as you know Calvinists, or they would have said the Reformed. They would not have said Calvinists. Calvin did not have that much influence. Uh, they would have thought of themselves as the Reformed. They would have thought of themselves as Lutherans. Luther did have that influence, actually. <laughs> um, but uh, they would have thought of themselves in terms of their, their commitments that were shared broadly with a, a range of people across Europe. Um, so that's, that's important for understanding how the institutional Anglican Church comes into existence. Now, Henry, I'm going to get to Henry now. Um, you have to understand Henry in context, okay? Uh, Henry... Um, came to prominence in the church because he published this anti, this refutation of Luther's errors, okay? Um, and he was called a defender of the faith, right? By, uh, I forget which, which pope it was, uh, Leo X, maybe? Um, so, you know, he's, uh, he's a good Catholic, right? Until he's not. Um, what happens to Henry is that he, uh, he marries a woman named Catherine of Aragon, who happens to be the, uh, I forget if it's the sister or the daughter, of the emperor, the, the Holy Roman Emperor, okay, Charles the Charles the Fifth, I think. I'm getting my my persons confused right now. I can't remember which number it is, but it's definitely Charles. Okay, Charles is definitely in there. Okay, so uh, he, he has to actually get uh, a dispensation to to get married to this woman, and the reason is because she was married to his brother before his brother died. Okay, so he marries his his deceased. Huh. No, but Charles V actually is the is the Holy Roman Emperor. 
Yeah. 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 I think I think it is his sister because he 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 came out of he became the Holy Roman Emperor out of Spain. Although none of this, I mean, we can we can let it lie for a minute. We'll figure it out. We'll we'll go consult consult Carter Lindbergh later on the history of the Reformation and get it straight. Okay. <clears throat> or some or some other Reformation historian. Um, all right, so uh, so he gets permission to do this, okay? Because it's not it's actually like against uh, against the um, the uh, canon law at the, at the time. Uh, so she doesn't bear him a son, so he doesn't have an heir, and he, he she bears him a succession of daughters. Which you know, as someone who has all daughters, I'm kind of like that's dope, you know what I mean? <laughs> but that wasn't so great for him. Uh, he really wanted the son, and so what the conclusion, the only reasonable conclusion that he could come to. That God did not give him a son was that uh, was that his marriage was cursed, and it was cursed because the Pope never had the authority to grant this dispensation in the first place. So he appeals to the Pope, you know, uh, obviously appeals to the Pope and says, "Hey, my marriage is cursed. You weren't allowed to do that in the first place. You should give me another dispensation to divorce this woman." Or really, an annulment because it, it uh, violated all these different uh, provisions of canon law. So it was never a valid marriage to begin with. And he has all of his canon lawyers working on this. Okay, meanwhile, alongside of what Henry's doing, Henry, again, thinks of himself as a very good Catholic. Uh, there is his Archbishop of Canterbury, a guy named Thomas Cranmer. And Cranmer is like, has been all gallivanting around Europe, and he got married because uh, he was like, you know, really excited about Lutheranism. He gets really excited about Luther's reforms. So he's in the background saying, like, let's, let's get away from Rome, right? You're like, that's Henry, this is like, Obviously, this is, this is tyranny, right? Uh, this is oppression. So uh, this is all kind of going on in the background. And Henry comes to the conclusion once the Pope uh, quite you know, understandably says, no, I'm not going to grant a second dispensation. And by the way, uh, I need the support of Charles right now, so I'm definitely not going to grant that. Um, Henry decides, you know, uh, he's obviously wrong. He's obviously in error. He's an anti-Pope. Uh, and then he concludes... Hey, by the way, the English church used to have all these liberties in the medieval period. We used to be able to elect all of our own bishops, and Rome took that away. That was an act of tyranny. So he invokes this medieval statute, primunere, which means you can, like, it's, it's a statute that condemns any action of a foreign potentate operating in England. So he invokes that against the pope, and he splits the church off from, from Rome, and, uh, and this is in, all in 1533, uh, maybe more detailed than you wanted, uh, and declares himself the supreme head of the English church which you might recognize that there's a problem there, right? What's the problem? He's not a prelate. Well, okay, he's not a prelate, sure. But uh, I would go ahead and say that no prelate is head of the church either. Because who's the head of the church? Jesus, Jesus, right? It's a Sunday school answer, right? I mean, come come on. There's only one head. So, you know, Elizabeth, his his daughter, uh, um, by Catherine of Aragon, by the way, uh, she's become a Protestant, and she declares herself supreme governor. That's better. Supreme governor of the church. Okay, so all this happens. By the way, Henry still thinks of himself as a very good Catholic, just a non-Roman Catholic. Um, and, you know, he, he makes all these efforts to, uh, to you know, co- coerce and compel his people to remain committed to the doctrines of the Catholic faith and not to these new fangled Lutheran ideas uh, or Zwinglian ideas as they're, they're emerging from the continent, Calvinistic ideas. And so he enacts these series of statutes, right? And like one of the things he does, I mean, this is like really macabre, right? But he has six people put to death, three Roman Catholics and three Lutherans. And he has the Catholics uh, hanged for sedition and the Lutherans burned for heresy. Oh gosh, that's really not a great moment in the history of the church, I will say. So, uh, but this this is how Henry envisions himself. But Henry dies, 
very, uh, very soon after this happens. And his son, the one son that he was able to have after, you know, I think his, uh, I don't know how many marriages it was. I think it was the eighth. It's probably the eighth, right? Or the sixth. Sixth marriage, I forget. Anyway, lots of marriages later, he has a son. And his son's named Edward VI. And Edward becomes the king of England, obviously, after Henry dies. But he's only nine years old. So the country is ruled by, uh, by a series of regents, right, um, in his, on his behalf. And the regents that are appointed are piping hot Protestants. They're like, they're super anti-Rome. They're like really committed to this new settlement. And, um, and so they, they begin to, you know, forge all of these Reformation, you know, priorities in England. Um, interestingly, the thing that they leave alone is episcopacy. Like, they don't go that way with uh, the rest of the Reformation, which is interesting. And there's a lot of debate about why that might be. Because really, they were committed in a great many ways to, uh, to the Reformation projects. Uh, and they do, they do a lot of good work, honestly. Um, they clean house. They get rid of simony. They get rid of uh, pluralism. They are committed to a learned ministry. And the more radical members among them are especially pushing that agenda to get rid of all of the, all of the illiterate priests that are occupying these different places. They, uh, they, they work on, uh, you know, the regents work on the... Uh, uh, a universal publication of an English Bible um, that, uh, you know, because printing is not cheap in this time period, right? So it's like in every church there is one Bible and the Bible is chained to the lectern, you know, uh, so that nobody can steal it. Uh, it's an interesting thing. Um, but the idea is that the priest will be able to read it in English and you'll be able to listen and hear it. Um, so this is, this is essentially how the church becomes a Reformation church. Because under Henry, it really wasn't supposed to be. It was supposed to be Catholicism that was, you know, not, not subject to the Roman pontiff. But under Edward, it becomes this, it becomes this Reformation church. And Cranmer gets, gets basically his way under Edward. He gets to do whatever he wants to, um, <clears throat> which includes a number of things. Uh, let's talk first about the most important thing that Thomas Cranmer ever did in his entire life, which is to translate and compile the Book of Common Prayer. So uh, what is that? Is that number four or five? We're on five now? Awesome. Okay, we're, we're making progress. We're moving quickly. All right, so the Book of Common Prayer is uh, the most important thing, I will say, that Thomas Cramer ever did with his life. The most influential thing he ever did with his life, I should say. Uh, as Charles Heffling, who's a historian who focuses on the Book of Common Prayer and its transmission across the Anglican Communion, he says, The story of the Book of Common Prayer cannot properly be told without at the same time telling the story of Anglicanism, because it is the story of Anglicanism, seen from the standpoint of the one thing that has defined what Anglicanism consists of. Everywhere the Anglicanism has gone, the prayer book has also gone. And in every civilization where, the, where Anglicanism has landed, a new prayer book has been created on the basis of these precedents of older prayer books to, to, that encompasses the language and the, the idioms and the, um, you know, the, the prized sort of cultural values of that particular culture. So um, it's a really amazing gift, actually, to the church, this Book of Common Prayer. I think it's one of the most important things that Anglicanism has gifted to the, the broader Christian world. Uh, and it's actually, you know, it's, it's really interesting to watch evangelicals uh, who are now becoming interested in liturgy, uh, and they're, they're pulling from the Book of Common Prayer, you know, because it is the, it is the, uh, <clears throat> one of the most important um, artifacts that Christianity has ever produced, liturgically speaking. Okay, so what is the Book of Common Prayer? Um, what Cranmer does is, well, let me back up for a second. If you are a medieval priest, number one, what do you say the mass in? Latin. Latin. Okay. Yes. You say the mass in Latin. So nobody has any idea what you're saying. Okay. 
Number two, it's really complicated to say mass, okay? You need a bunch of books. Number one, you need a breviary, which has all these different readings, right? You need the pie, which is an instruction manual. Like, here's how you put all the things together. You need the manual. Uh, you need a pontifical, which is, well, you don't need the pontifical, which said the mass. But if you're a bishop, you need a pontifical, which is all the episcopal offices. You need a missal, which uh, is more instructions. And then you need various primers, which are more readings and uh, all these other things. So, so there's all these different books. You need like five or six different books in order to say mass, okay? Uh, and all these books are different in different places. So there's like, you know, in England, there'd be like one, one set of things that would be, it would be uh, in use in London, another in Salisbury, another in York, you know. So every place has a different use, okay? Um, and so what Cranmer does is he takes all these books and he puts them in one place, the Book of Common Prayer, and then he translates them into English and he chooses one use, which ended up being the use in Salisbury to be normative, um, for, for all of England. So all of England was to, was to be uh, praying together and proclaiming the gospel together in one voice according to one use, one, one way of worshiping, which is a beautiful thing, actually. So this was to be like all of England united in prayer. Uh, it was in the vernacular so that people could understand and pray together with it uh, and also became an a incredibly treasured resource for increasing literacy among the common people, right? Um, if, if it's important for you to be able to read in order to worship, like, then, it, then literacy becomes an incredibly high priority. So this is a huge stimulus to literacy uh, in England and then in America where it becomes also um, uh, used use significantly. Um, and here's where the monasticism bit comes in, okay? So the central, the central bit of the Book of Common Prayer is not in the, in the initial versions of it. Uh, first one's in 1549. The, the central office in it is not the Eucharist. It's not the Mass. You know, it's that the first Book of Common Prayer in 1549 says, uh, Holy Communion, commonly called the Mass. Okay, So it keeps that language in there. Uh, it's not the Mass, though, that's the central office. The central office is the daily office of morning and evening prayer. So the one thing that the monks were deeply committed to above anything else is prayer, and prayer according to a regular pattern or uh, of, of um, a temporal pattern. So you prayed, if, you were, if you're a Benedictine monk, you prayed seven times a day. Psalm 119, uh, I forget what verse it is. There's, lot, there's lots of them in there. Somewhere in the hundreds. says, seven times a day will I praise thee. Okay? And on the basis of that, the monks kind of, and it's a sort of inspiration for that, the monks prayed seven times a day. And they, it was every three hours. Okay? So they had seven prayer services. Okay, so the Book of Common Prayer takes three of those as normative, morning, noon, and night, and especially morning and evening. And that's Again, on the basis of the patterns we find in the Old and New Testament, right? So if you look at Deuteronomy 6, the, the most important prayer in the life of the Israelites, the Shema, it says, I will, you, are to, uh, you are to proclaim this prayer um, when you rise in the morning and when you go to sleep, right? So two times a day. Um, so in other words, uh, this kind of twice a day pattern becomes normative for what Cranmer thinks the prayer offices ought to be. So morning and evening, those are the most important things. And then noon. Okay, so this is a kind of Benedictinism for the masses, right? This is like every person is actually conscript, conscripted into a monastic style of life. I mean, one of the big Reformation priorities, and there's a, one of the early Reformation bishops, a guy named Hugh Latimer, he says, um, you know, tells a story about St. Anthony, um, who has a dream. And you know, St. Anthony, again, is the, is the desert monk, right, that is, gets famous because Athanasius writes his biography. St. Anthony has a dream wherein God appears to him in a vision. He says, hey, all of this, this, ascetic, this ascetic endeavor that you're doing, that's beautiful. But I want you to go meet this cobbler 
in Alexandria, the city. Okay? So Antony goes into the city, he meets this cobbler, and he realizes that the cobbler's life is as beautiful and as profound and as committed as his own. Right? And so he's humbled by that, to realize that, like, oh, this person in the city who's living a common life, married and with children and all that kind of stuff, is as holy as my life out here in the desert. Uh, so Latimer tells the story to say, like, hey, this doesn't, this doesn't abolish, the Book of Common Prayer does not abolish monasticism, it abolishes the laity, right? It abolishes the idea that there's a kind of lax life that you can live and still be considered a Christian in good standing. It says, look, everybody is committed to this. So, um, yeah. Um, so the, uh, the Book of Common Prayer goes through several revisions. It changes over time. It has continued to change over time. Uh, the first one is in 1549, uh, and it's, it's still a pretty Catholic prayer book. Uh, by that point. Um, but in 1552, there is, uh, you know, Edward VI has come into power and it becomes a very Protestant prayer book. Uh, and it's, it's pretty, pretty tumultuous. Okay, Edward dies really shortly um, after, after his reforms come into place. And his, uh, his sister comes to the throne. Anybody remember who that is? Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Yes, Mary Mary. Um, any of you ever, ever uh, do the little thing with a mirror when you were kids? Yeah. Right, yeah. I don't really understand the connection there at all. There, there isn't one as far as I can tell. <clears throat> but anyway, she does, she does enact a bloody persecution to try to roll back this Protestant uh, innovations. Uh, and she, she puts to death some 300 Protestants, uh, most of them burned at the stake. Uh, it's pretty bad. Uh, Cranmer himself gets burned during this, during this point. So there's actually three Reformation bishops that get burned at the stake. Anybody know who they are? If you're, if you're a really serious Anglican Protestant, you would know. Uh, here's a hint. Yeah. All right. So the hint is that, that there's there's um, evangelical theological colleges named after them that are Anglican, right? So it's uh, it's Latimer, uh, Ridley, and Cranmer. Those three. And Cranmer uh, is really interesting and kind of a touching story. So uh, John Fox, who's a an early Reformation historiographer, puts together the Book of Martyrs, which are basically like these are these are the people you're supposed to look to as your heroes. Heroes, right? So Cranmer's in there. And, uh, and, you know, he tells the story of Cranmer. Cranmer, uh, when Mary becomes queen, she puts him in the Tower of London for treason and for heresy. And, uh, and, and he's all alone and he's confused and he's being bombarded with all these Catholic messages. And he signs a recantation of everything that he's done. Um, and then Mary says, well, I'm, I'm so glad you did that, but I'm still going to burn you. <laughs> um, so he's like, you know, his back is stiffened by this. And so when he's marched up to the flames, the first thing he does is put his hand in the fire. He says, this hand, this hand is offended, right? So anyway, uh, yes. So Cranmer is uh, put to death. He becomes a martyr along with Ridley and, uh, and um, Latimer. And the, uh, the, the really interesting thing is Mary's reign only lasts about three years. And uh, she actually, uh, she dies of stomach cancer and her sister becomes the queen after Elizabeth. Um, and it's in Elizabeth's reign that things really get stabilized. You get a prayer book that, like stands the test of time. The 1559 Book of Common Prayer really becomes the basis for all of the other prayer books, including the final version, which is 1662. Okay, uh, so 1662 Book of Common Prayer. That's really interesting. If you look at uh, one of our one of our standards in the ACNA, one of our uh, confessional documents is called the Jerusalem Declaration. Has everybody read that, or do you know what I'm talking about at least? No. Okay. Well, go, go later on uh, online and look up the Jerusalem Declaration because it is important for us as, as a, um, the Anglican Church in North America. It was uh, a document that came into existence as a result of GAFCON, which is the uh, uh, Global Anglican Futures Conference, uh, which met 
and this is all coming down the pike, I promise. Um, but it's Af- basically African bishops, right, came up with this document, and, and it becomes normative for the ACNA. But it declares that the 1662 Book of Common Prayer is the basis for all future prayer books, uh, you know, adapted to common locality and culture and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So, all right, there you go. Um, the prayer book. How about the 39 articles? This is the second most important thing Thomas Cranmer ever did, maybe. Uh, you know, obviously the most important. I, I say this in jest, you know, tongue-in-cheek, right? Because, of course, the most important thing Thomas Cranmer ever did, just like you, is to know and love Jesus with all of his heart. That's the most important thing he ever did. But the most influential thing he ever did was the Book of Common Prayer. And the 39 articles it comes, is, a, is a, uh, you know, a considerable step down, but still an important thing that he did. Uh, <clears throat> so he initially develops 42 articles, uh, in 1563, and then um, he actually dies, and they get trimmed down a bit to 39. And these are a particularly, uh, they are a moderate uh, Reformation document. I mean, that's, that's what they are. So lots of Reformation confessions are highly um, detailed, like every doctrine considered and um, spoken, at, spoken, spoken towards and spoken uh, about in a you know, profound measure. Um, and if you think about, like, to me, like, the quintessential confessional document is the Westminster Confession of Faith. I mean, it's a book. It's literally a book, right? It's so huge. And it addresses everything, including, like, God's agency, like, how God concurs with secondary causes and stuff like this. And you're like, wow, that's really specific, guys. Um, Aristotle. Yeah. So, um, anyway, but, but the 39 Articles is, a, it's, it is very short. It's very brief. What it addresses are controversies very specific to the Reformation. So it becomes a document that, can, that, that, that uh, differentiates us in great measure from the abuses that the Roman church was engaged in at that time that the Anglican church wanted to combat. So it's, it has very specific phrasing of things. Like, so for instance, it condemns images, but what it condemns is the Romish doctrine of images, right? So the, the Romish doctrine is like, People worshiping the images, right? So does that condemn all iconography? I don't think so. I mean, if you're a particular kind of Anglican, you, you definitely think it does. But I don't think it does. I think what it condemns is the worship of images. But I still think, man, like there's lots of ways. Like, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if you think about the way the Orthodox treat images, like there's, there's like plenty of latitude between that and worshiping images, right? So, um, you know, so I... It's, it's, it's an interesting statement that ha- has the marks of its own time, uh, but continues to be really inspiring, actually, in a great many ways. So one of the things that it, it, it does is it sets out a very orthodox uh, theology of the Trinity and Christology, so doctrine of Christ. Um, it declares the sufficiency of the scriptures for salvation. It doesn't say we can't learn anything outside of the scriptures about Christianity. It doesn't say that various traditions are like completely unusable. In fact, the Book of Common Prayer condemns that approach and says the church has the ability to set the liturgy and to, to, uh, to enact different kinds of ceremonies so long as they don't, uh, they don't go against the spirit of the scriptures. But whatever is necessary for salvation is contained within the scriptures. So they're sufficient for salvation. It's a very beautiful, studied, measured, moderate statement. Um, it, it counsels the acceptance of the apostles, the Nicene, and the Athanasian Creed as the, as the sort of the governing creeds for the Christian church, um, which continues to be our, our norm. Uh, in the ACNA, uh, we, we do say the Athanasian Creed once a year on Trinity Sunday. Um, so I actually, actually made Jonathan do it this year, <laughs> or last year, I mean, uh, 2017. He was like, okay, we'll do it. So uh, look out for that uh, coming up here at the end of Eastertide. You know, you got Ascension, Pentecost, and then Trinity. On Trinity, 
you're going to say the Athanasian Creed. It is long. It is very long and, uh, and involved, shall we say. Um, uh, there's a, again, you want to hear another joke? I'm full of bad jokes tonight for some reason, right? So, uh, you know, the, the Athanasian Creed uh, says that uh, they're, um, they're, 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 so the, the Father is incomprehensible, the Son is incomprehensible, and the Spirit is incomprehensible. But they are not three incomprehensibles, but one incomprehensible. So the joke goes, you know, as your, as your preacher is proclaiming this, you know, uh, it's, it's the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Spirit incomprehensible, the whole thing incomprehensible. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. Yeah, it's a bad joke. I know. I told you it was a bad joke. I gave you fair warning, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the Book of Homilies um, is a again another period piece, um, and it's it's published right after uh, right around the same time as Book of Common Prayer. Uh, and the reason that Cramer develops these is because he has a bunch of unlearned priests in his in his church, and so he wants there to be. Uh, a, a set of homilies that you could literally read to your congregation, okay? And they cover, you know, a range of topics that he thought were important, like the sufficiency of the scriptures, uh, the life of prayer, the life of mortification of sin, all these different things, right? Uh, so they have, a, they have a, a profound kind of reformation tone and content, uh, and they're very anti-Roman, right? So uh, they're not, I mean, they're not still in use except... Uh, in churches that find their inspiration from the Reformation Anglicanism, um, but there, so that's that's a that's a wing of Anglicanism, but it's not the mainstream. So they don't have that kind of continuing force or authority. Does that make sense? And, and, and the, so they're different in that sense from the Book of Common Prayer and the Thirty Nine Articles, but which remain. Not, but they're still part of the historical tradition. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, for sure. And so they're not. They're not. Um, Yeah, no, they're not repudiated. Okay. Definitely not. I mean, we don't repudiate uh, anything about the Reformation, actually, except for the the, um, the the spite that characterizes many of the documents, right? The kind of name-calling. and I mean, you know, uh, you can go online right now and find uh, the, the Luther insult generator. Have you guys ever seen that? Oh, that's a lot of fun. You, 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 should, you, should, you should look at the Luther insult generation, generator if you want a good time later on. Um, but you know we want to get away from that spirit, obviously. Uh, but but not the doctrines. I mean, the doctrines are are um, are beautiful su- uh, summaries of scriptural teaching. I think in many ways. Okay, um, so onward with the thirty nine articles. Um, they 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 hit this theme of the necessity of faith for salvation through grace, through the merits, the sole merits of Jesus Christ, uh, and the necessity of sanctification, the necessity of good works demonstrating a lively faith. That language of lively faith is profoundly important to me. Like. The idea that faith is not this kind of like sterile belief. Like it's not simply like you, you, it was sent to something. You know, it's like it's a conversion of the heart that, that, bears, that bears itself out in a life that's devoted to, to seeing the kingdom established on earth. Um, so that lively faith is really important. Uh, there's a, a centrality given to the visible church of Christ. In other words, the church is not, the church is invisible, of course, because it includes those who've gone on before us. Uh, and it includes those who aren't necessarily known as Christians. But primarily the church is the visible body of Christ here on earth that proclaims the word and, and re- receives the sacraments of Christ uh, and that, that has fellowship with one another and enacts this, this common life together. So that visible church of Christ is really important. And the way that you know that you're in the visible church of Christ is that the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments are duly administered according to Christ's ordinance, which again, a very nice kind of reformation statement of what the church is. Word and sacrament. Um, 
And then it also says, uh, again, you know, differently than a number of the Reformed churches on the continent, that the church may organize its own worship so long as it does not ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. So there is latitude for the church to, uh, to stipulate the way it's going to worship and it's its own kind of liturgy. Uh, and then lastly, you know, what I want to highlight is, uh, is its theology of the sacraments, which I think is really, really strong. Um, it, it, it allows uh, for the reality of Christ's presence in them, but it does not try to specify the meaning of that mystery. So it says the sacraments are not only badges or tokens, but rather sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace. In other words, they do what they say they're doing, right? Um, and then it says, it, he goes on to say uh, that they are effectual signs of grace by, by the which Christ doth work invisibly in us and doth not only quicken, but also strengthen and confirm our faith in him. So they, are, they, they confirm, they build up, they, uh, they, they, they do the work of regeneration and renewal in you. Um, so strong theology of the sacraments, but unlike the Roman church, which tries to identify how the mystery works, it does not seek to do that. It, it allows the mystery to be what it is, a mystery. Um, so when we say Christ is not materially present in the sacraments, he's sacramentally present, and you ask, what does sacramentally mean? We say, it's a mystery, but it's real. <laughs> it's true. It's objective. It's real, but we don't know what it means. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to uh, Anglicanism in America. Right, unless anybody has a question so far. Any questions? Yeah. So is there still seven sacraments? No. Well, well, <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the middle way, man. It's always the middle way in Anglicanism. Uh, we don't repudiate the other five. Um, we do. So the articles, that's a, that's a great point to, to mention. The articles distinguish between sacraments of the gospel and sacraments of the church. So the sacraments of the gospel are the sacraments par excellence. They are the things that Christ told us to do, such as baptism and Eucharist. Although he did, he did also tell us to wash each other's feet. So the Anabaptists have a point there. But, and that's not included in the seven, right? So maybe there's eight. Um, so, uh, but, but there is, there is uh, the, the baptism and the Eucharist have a centrality in Anglicanism uh, that actually, you know, the Roman church has come, has come around to seeing it that way. Uh, but, but Anglicanism uh, is very serious about this, that this is, these are the dominically instituted sacraments. They are the sacraments that Christ gave us. Now, there are other ceremonies, other rites that the church performs. Now, that would include unction, that includes marriage, that includes uh, orders, holy orders, that includes, uh, come on, help me out, somebody, uh, confirmation. Uh, what's the other one? There's one more. I'm, I, I'm, my mind's not working well enough to think of it right now. Yeah. All right, well. Uh, uh, oh, uh, um, uh, penance, penitence, confession. Um, yeah, so the church does these things, and they have a sacramental character to them, but they are rites of the church, and they, they, are, they are places where we have seen uh, grace operating in the past. They've been helpful as, as supports of buttresses to the faith, but they don't have the same status at all as, as the rest of the, as, as the other dominically instituted sacraments. Yeah, okay, so you can let them go, and it wouldn't be the end of the world, right? But if we let baptism and Eucharist go, that really might be, actually. Um, all right. So let's, uh, anybody else? Any other questions? Besides the internet, where do you find the articles? Articles of religion? The, the 39 uh, article, 39 yeah. Well, they, they'd probably be, I mean, I haven't looked, but they're probably on the ACNA website. Whenever the 2019 book comes into existence, they're in the back of that book. But they are in any prayer book in the so in the in the back of the 79 prayer book, which I which is the way that I was like formed as an Anglican. Um, they're in the historical document section at the back, the Articles of Religion. Yeah, along with the Athanasian Creed and uh, 
Oh gosh, I forget what the other stuff is back there. Oh, the uh, Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral. Yeah. Okay. Anyone? Anyone else? All right. We're doing good. All right. So um, Anglicanism in America. How does Anglicanism come to America? Um, so first off, like everywhere else that Anglicanism has gone, not everywhere, but most of the places that Anglicanism has gone, Anglicanism accompanied the empire, the expansion of the empire. Um, so there is uh, both good and bad in that. Um, but essentially, the, 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 the vision was never in its inception that this would become a, you know, a multinational, multi-ethnic um, way of following Christ. It was thought, I mean, when, when you read some of the ancient, or not ancient, some of the older uh, Reformation divines, like Richard Hooker, for instance, like they, they, they said, this is the, what Anglicanism is, is the Catholic Church in England. You know, like that's, that's what this is. So, you know, wherever England goes, there goes Anglicanism, right? I mean, that was the vision. Um, and so when Anglicanism comes to the New World, um, it is, you know, aboard, aboard boats that carry ministers of the gospel who are accompanying, you know, British citizens, essentially. Uh, so, you know, the first uh, Anglican service of worship is in Jamestown, Virginia. Uh, then there's some others, uh, you know, as people come in, come into various places uh, on the, in the New World. Uh, but that's, this is all like prior to the establishment of actual particular churches here in America. And that's really, you know, that happens throughout the colonial period. Uh, and it's, but that's actually not all that important for Anglicanism in America. Um, because Ang- the role of Anglicanism changes so dramatically with 1776 that like, there's like hardly any relationship between these two. Okay. So 1776, who can tell me what happened in 1776? Are we good Americans here? <laughs> I mean, everybody knows what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> okay. Independence. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. So uh, the American Revolution, the Declaration of Independence, uh, you know, the American Constitution, all of that that happens in quick succession um, causes a little bit of a problem for, uh, for a, a way of following Jesus Christ that claims to be connected to England, right? Um, so there's a funny story that I read about, um, you know, a guy, uh, one, of these, one of these Anglican priests in Virginia, and uh, he's, he's having so much trouble with his congregation after after the tumult of the revolution, that he uh, he begins to preach with two loaded pistols on top of the on top of the pulpit. I told Jonathan the other day. I was like, I was like, hey man, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's not the best model, maybe, but you know, maybe something to think about. Um, all right, so um, you know, Anglicanism almost disappears. Um, so it's really interesting if you read histories of the histories of Christianity in America. Uh, so, like, a, a good one to read. I mean, it's a big, fat book. So if you have a lot of time, you, you would read this one uh, by Mark Knoll called America's God. Um, great book. But his, his uh, basic thesis of this book is that Christianity, uh, Christianity in America is as different from Reformational Protestantism as Reformational Protestantism is from the Catholicism that came before it. So it's a dramatic change. Dramatic change. And the biggest thing that happens in, in the history of American Christianity is an early divide between what we might call populist forms of theology and, and church life, church discipline, uh, and uh, elite or academic forms of church life, right? So Anglicanism is quite clearly on the elite slash academic side of things, right? I mean, we, we value a learned clergy. Uh, we, you know, we always end up attracting like, you know, the mercantile classes and things like that. I mean, not to say that we haven't had vibrant ministries among the poor, because we most certainly have. We most certainly have. 
Um, and, you know, the, both the evangelical wing of Anglicanism and the Catholic wing of Anglicanism have had tremendous, inspiring efforts to care for the poor. Uh, there was a, you know, in the 19th century, there were the, the Catholic slum priests, right, who went into the inner city and took care, took care of the poor. Uh, and, and similarly, um, uh, gosh, uh, what was his name? The, the, Cambridge, the Cambridge evangelical, um, Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon uh, had, a, had a, a profound, incredible ministry among the poor. So did William Wilberforce, all these evangelicals. So anyway, it's not that we don't have that. It's just that what, what's our center of gravity, right, as a, as a body? Well, our, our center of gravity tends to be more academic, tends to be more erudite. Uh, and, and that's that's. I mean, I don't think that's bad, uh, obviously, because uh, I'm a priest in this in this church. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it, it, very very early in American culture, there is a, a movement towards more populist modes of of, uh, of doing church and of, of doing theology. Um, and this has to do with the revolution. The revolution is a moment of of. Uh, of the, the affirmation of popular sovereignty and of the authority of the common person, right? Uh, and so the, the bodies, uh, the bodies that, that of, of Christians that proclaim that kind of theology uh, get incredible traction. So it's you know, the big winners in the American Revolution are the Baptists, but above all, the Methodists. The Methodists win big. And all the way through the 19th century, the Methodists win big. So, you know, if you go, uh, you know, it's really interesting. There's a sociologist named Robert Wuthnow, and he published a book called Rough Country about the history. It's really the history of Christianity in Texas, which is, you know, where my wife's from. And I'm really, um, you know, honorarily from there. I'm really not from anywhere. I'm from Atlanta, but my family's not from Atlanta, you know, so I'm not really from Atlanta. So I'm, I'm now, I'm from Texas. I'm grafted in. So I really value Texas a lot. Uh, but, you know, this book, Rough Country, is basically like, hey, like, Texas was a hard place. It's a hard place. So the only churches, the only kind of religion that survives there is hard-living Christianity. You know what I mean? Like people who are hard scrabble, they're willing to ride 300,000 miles on horseback over the course of five years, you know, and just preach anywhere that would have them, you know, in a barn, in the middle of a field, whatever it takes, right? Um, the world is my parish, as John Wesley famously, famously declared. So it's that kind of Christianity that wins, right? So Anglicanism almost disappears, okay, for, for a long period of time. Here's the other problem with Anglicanism, right? We're kind of top-heavy, you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Like we, we've got we've got this problem. Like we, we need a bishop in order to have clergy. You know what I mean? So uh, so here's a problem uh, in the new world uh, after the revolution. We don't got any bishops. <laughs> like that's kind of a problem. So we can't get new clergy. So how are we gonna you know plant churches and, and reestablish ourselves? Okay. So then what we end up doing is we send we send okay we got a representative. His name is Samuel Seabury. So we send Seabury over to England to get ordained or get consecrated as a bishop. Uh, and nobody will do it. <laughs> you know, like, like, we're not really sure what your status is. So we're not sure if we can do this, right? So here's what the interesting thing that happens. And I think it's fateful for the history of Anglicanism in America. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the, one of the real difficulties of talking about Anglicanism, Anglicanism and Anglican history is that it's all bound up together with kings and queens. It's a lot of names, you know. You go like, you know, first you get Elizabeth and then after Elizabeth is James the first and then it's, and then it's Charles the first and then it's, you know, you got the interregnum period and then you've got, you know, Charles the second and then James the second. It's like, oh man, like my head is splitting, right? All right, here's, here's the important point for now. One of these kings, James the second, becomes a Roman Catholic, which becomes a major problem because he starts favoring the Roman Catholics. So a group of committed Protestants within England, like you know, they, they start looking to the Netherlands and they say, hey, there's a, there's a Protestant king over there who we think would make a really good king. So they invite him to come and conquer England, which he does. And because James II is an extremely weak king with an extremely weak army, he just flees. 
Okay, so it's the glorious revolution. You ever heard of the glorious revolution? You know, it's bloodless, right? Because you know William comes in and James flees. Okay, so there are some clergy within this, including some bishops within uh, this time period, who have taken an oath of allegiance to James, and they think they're bound by that oath. Like they, they can't repudiate that oath because it binds them, and so they can't swear a new oath of allegiance to William, who's now the king. Uh, so they have to leave their posts. So where do they go? They go to Scotland, where there's not an established Anglican church, because when they tried to establish the Anglican church, people rioted. They literally rioted. This woman, Jenny Geddes, threw a stool at the minister who tried to, um, like, a, you know, a stool, like a, like a literally, like a stool that you would sit on. She threw it at him as he tried to do the liturgy. Um, so the Anglican church, needless to say, did not get established in Scotland. The established church in Scotland was Presbyterian. So these Anglicans come up there as a kind of like side, you know, like gathered church and, and uh, like, like Baptists would do, right? They gather people. Um, and and they, they begin because they're like, they're like, you know, the, the Anglican liturgy is pretty good, but it's not as good as it could be. So they start creating all these liturgical experiments, right? They find these ancient liturgies. They find this, uh, you know, Syrian liturgy from the fourth century. And it's got this thing called an epiclesis, which is a really cool prayer where we ask that the Holy Spirit would come upon these gifts, that they, they, they may be for us the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Anybody recognize that prayer? We say it every Sunday, right? I mean, the epiclesis, right? So they, they add that in. It wasn't there in 1662. So and other things like this. There are, there's like little experiments that they do, and they publish these liturgical experiments for the benefit of the populace. And they, they call them the wee bookies, right? Because they're uh, you know they're Scottish and they have the cute little expressions like that. Wee bookies, you know. All right, so um, so they, but they've got bishops, right? They've got these. They're called non-jurors because they refuse to swear the oath of allegiance to William. So these non-jurors are hanging out up there in Scotland doing their own thing. And Seabury, because he can't get he can't get consecrated in, in England, he's like, well, I'll just go up the street, right? So he goes up to Edinburgh and he meets these folks and they're like, oh yeah, well we'll, we'll consecrate you. Uh, so they you know they lay hands on him, they they consecrate him as a bishop. So he becomes the first American bishop. And, uh, and they say to him, they can whisper in his ear, they're like, hey, if you get a chance in convention, do these wee bookies instead of the 1662 book, right? So Seabury takes these back and he looks at them and he's like, these are actually amazing. Like, this is amazing. So uh, as the American Episcopal Church is being established in the later part of the 18th century, it's at its first convention, what they take on as their Book of Common Prayer, which is initially published in 1789, uh, is these wee bookies. So it's integrated within the core of the 1662 version, but it includes all these really interesting experiments, right, that happened in Scotland. So you might think of us as a not as actually not really, a, you know, a branch of English Christianity in terms of our prayer book, but more as a branch of Scottish Christianity. It's interesting. Um, okay, so... Um, what happened to the role of the monarch in the church? Oh, we changed that prayer. Uh, you know, I mean, we don't pray for King George anymore, right? We pray for the, the governors and those in authority. Um, and you got to scratch that, that particular line from the, the articles. The revision of the articles that's received in the Episcopal Church talks about magistrates rather than, uh, rather than kings, right, or queens. So there's no monarchy in this church. And this church is really committed to, uh, to being differentiated from Roman Catholicism, which at the time is like a, uh, a, a deeply, regarded as a deeply subversive religion. So it takes the, the moniker of the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States of America. So uh, very clearly, we are an Episcopal Church. We have bishops, but we are Protestant, okay? Um, so uh, Seabury becomes the first bishop. William White becomes the second bishop. He's also consecrated by Scots, um, interestingly. So again, back to that Scottish connection. Um, and the, the Book of Common Prayer... Where did these guys consider their, their, uh, their 
locale. Yeah, so this is uh, you know, related to something that will, um, will become important uh, later on when I talk about the Anglican communion. But what we're finding here is the seeds of that idea, right? That there's, that there's a um, jurisdictional difference, right? It's not like the English church has no more authority over this American church, but we still have the same history. We still have, you know, all these kind of shared practices and artifacts, you know, the Book of Common Prayer, obviously, being the most important one of them. Um, so there's not, we don't have allegiance to Canterbury, but we, we do kind of look to the Archbishop of Canterbury because he's important for our history. Um, but there's no, like in, in America, in the American context, what's authoritative is the general convention, you know, as, as it gathers, and it's all the bishops coming together. It's a conciliar vision. And this actually, this idea, interestingly, reaches back into the 14th century because there's a big conflict about whether or not the Pope or a general council is authoritative. And the Anglicans take a decisive stand on the, on the general council and the, the council of bishops that, uh, that decides those different controversies. Okay. So um, why there's a presiding bishop instead of the yeah, archbishop? Yeah, although we have an archbishop now. Now it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but the idea was to have a moderating or presiding bishop. Yeah, exactly. Um, who, interestingly, at that time, continued to have a diocese, maintained a diocese of his own, actually. Um, was not, so he was, he was definitely not an archbishop. Um, yeah, all right. So... Um, that's a little bit about the formation of Anglicanism in America. Um, we have two prayer book revisions uh, prior to the, the, the split with the Episcopalians. One in 1929, um, which adds a, we might call it a Catholic dimension, uh, and a slightly charismatic dimension, interestingly, uh, to, to um, Anglican identity. Uh, and it foregrounds uh, the, um, the Eucharist, actually, in a way that hadn't been the case prior to that. And that's, again, reflecting uh, further influence of those wee bookies. Uh, and then the 1979 prayer book revision, which is the one that you're probably most familiar with um, at this point, although you should be more familiar with the ACNA's prayer book, tsk, tsk, even though we don't have it yet. <laughs> 2019, you will become familiar with the ACNA's prayer book. Um, for what we will have hard copies of it here, and that'll be a lot easier to interact with than the um, kind of online virtual version that we have at present. Um, it's good. I really like the ACNA's uh, prayer book. I think it's available online. Oh, yeah. You just go to the ACNA website. And it's a, it's a section called Text for Common Prayer, and it has all of the offices. And they're still translating the Psalter and doing a couple of other things. But it's, yeah, it's mostly there. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk about church parties now. Um, so uh, in the 19th century, Anglicanism is an internally highly differentiated movement okay so there's there's different emphases you know that some people have more orientation towards liturgy, liturgy and the tradition and you know sort of like the catholic impulse within anglicanism some people have a more evangelical orientation you know you get wesley and whitfield and all these guys who are willing to cross parish boundaries and preach out in fields and go wherever the lost are and they're very i mean they're obviously formidable and uh, deeply inspirational people, um, but it's a very different kind of ethos, right, than that kind of Catholic ethos. And that's 18th century. In the 19th century, these different emphases uh, end up crystallizing or hardening into divisions, really. Um, so you, you get voluntary associations that, you know, everybody know what a voluntary association is? No. It's just basically like people organizing uh, in, in order to accomplish a particular purpose, okay? So... Um, you know, a, a, like an example of a voluntary association, besides a church, which is a voluntary association, uh, is like, you know, uh, fraternal brotherhoods, like 
there's like a ton of them up here. I was like, I was so shocked. And I came up here and there's like these moose lodges and all these like things. I'm like, I've never seen anything like this before. And we had like Kiwanis down south, you know. Um, but like the Rotary Club and Kiwanis, all this stuff. It's like you're organizing to, to accomplish a very specific purpose, okay. So uh, in the Anglican Church, there are all these voluntary associations that emerge in order to foster clergy that have a particular temperament, okay. And, it's, and, and these voluntary associations end up kind of like making these, these differentiations very rigid, okay? Um, so, you know, the, the first one to discuss is evangelicalism, evangelical Anglicans. Uh, and this is, this is both stateside and in, in England where this is happening, okay? So, you know, there's a, one, uh, one English bishop uh, named Bishop Brackenridge, and I, I, I found this in a, a book by a guy named Mark Chapman. I was, I was like, astonished by it. But he says, the, f- the first duty that I convey to all of my clergy is, is, to, uh, is to proclaim and to embody the anti-Roman character of this body. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, what a terrible, like, you know what I mean? Like, what, what a terrible thing to make to foreground, to be like, this is the thing that characterizes us, right? It wasn't like that mostly, right? But that's, that's, a, that's a kind of like eye-popping version of that. Um, but evangelicalism is committed to the Reformation heritage of Anglicanism and to, uh, you know, so there's a, a historian named David Bebbington who um, talks about the evangelical movement, which is really transdenominational. I mean, it includes, it includes Anglicans, but also Baptists and Methodists and lots of other different people. So in trying to sort of encapsulate that, he, he, he develops like four theses about what characterizes evangelicalism. Anybody heard of this, the, Bebbing, the Bebbington Quadrilateral? No. Okay, um, it's a great book, uh, Evangelicalism in Early Modern Britain, great book. Uh, but he says, look, it's, it's crucicentrism, so the centrality, the power of the cross. It's biblicentrism, uh, the, you know, the authority of the Bible, the preeminent authority of the Bible, supremacy of the Bible. Uh, it's the centrality of conversion, so the new birth. Uh, and then finally, uh, public activism, so the activistic spirit, um, the desire to, um, to bring the influence of Christianity, uh, co- like, more pervasively, culturally speaking. So, uh, and that goes together with conversion, right? If you imagine, like, in kind of, you, mar- you, you march in lockstep. As people are converted, then, then their morals and their values change. They wanted to see both those things happening across society. So that, that's really, it's a nice way of thinking about what evangelicalism is, and, and it's Anglican guys as well. So um, in 1847, I'll just talk about the American side of things for a second. Um, one of these voluntary so- societies uh, is founded called the Evangelical Knowledge Society, um, and it was concerned that the general, uh, the general uh, uh, convention and the various seminaries of Anglicanism were becoming too Catholic. Um, and there's a reason for that, which, is, uh, which I'll talk, to, talk about in a minute in the Catholic impulse, right, in the 19th century. Um, they were concerned that the, the, the church was becoming too Catholic, that the seminaries were becoming very Catholic. And so the, gen- the general convention in 1847, they founded this association to promote evangelical values, to, uh, to you know, help uh, evangelical clergy uh, be resourced and connected to each other and to get candidates who are evangelical, okay? So what they describe as evangelical is, the, the meaning of that word is indicating the leading and fundamental doctrines of the glorious Reformation. So, you know, not unbiased, right? <laughs> um, and uh, they, so they, they, the, what they think of as central to the fundamental doctrines of the Reformation is scripture, the sole rule of faith, not scripture and tradition, it's joint rule. Man, an utterly lost and helpless sinner in Christ, the most free and sufficient Savior. Pardon the direct gift of Christ to everyone that believeth with the heart, with no intervention other than that needed to bring him to faith, not dependent upon a priestly act or any human intervention for the forgiveness of sin. So explicitly what this this is condemning is baptismal regeneration, the idea that baptism conveys anything. 
Um, it's faith. Faith that does this. Okay. Justification is a gracious act of God received by faith without works. And worship is, according to our liturgy, simple and scriptural, not loaded with human inventions and unauthorized ceremonies. So, in other words, a very uh, um, a simple liturgy that is mostly focused on the proclamation of scripture. Um, so, this is, this is essentially uh, evangelical commitments in terms of wish, uh, worship and, uh, and doctrine. Uh, in 1862, the Evangelical Education Society is, is formed uh, for the specific purpose of giving scholarships to seminary for evangelical churchmen. Uh, and and this, this, uh, this document, I think, quite admirably highlights this public activistic character of evangelicalism. It says, As evangelicals of an older time led the way to prison reform, abolition of slavery, education based on ability, not social class, to justice as a basis of peace, so the society calls the church to be a servant to the world. That's the, this evangelical society. Calls the church to be a servant to the world. We call the church to relate to all aspects of human culture, testing the spirit of cultural expressions and forms by the spirit of Christ. We call the church to prophetic critique wherever culture debases human dignity and to support wherever culture expresses human wholeness as measured by Christ. Okay, so that, that's, that's actually a really beautiful vision of societal engagement, I think. So... You know, this is an emphasis in the life of Anglicanism, and not one that I would ever want to dismiss or to get rid of. Like, it's beautiful. Um, and uh, the problem in the 19th century was that it became so trenchantly opposed to the Catholic elements within Anglicanism that it was almost, I mean, it created a party. It created, you know, a very kind of factious party uh, within the midst of Anglicanism. Similarly, Anglo-Catholicism did the same thing, right? I mean, so... Um, what happens, where the sort of Catholic revival happens, uh, begins in 1833 in England with what's called the Oxford Movement or the Tractarian Movement. Anybody know what this is about? Anybody ever heard of this? Jack's heard of it. Anybody else? Okay. Tell me, what, tell me what you think. It's Cardinal Newman. Yeah. And he's trying to revitalize the uh, spirituality of the Catholic Church. Well, the, the Anglican Church. That's how, how it begins. Well, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, but um, when he winds up converting to... Right. Yeah, Catholicism because he wants to view that kind of spirituality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's really interesting. So in the early early part of the 19th century, uh, the movement is more closely associated with his uh, compatriot, a guy named Edward Pusey. Uh, in fact, the movement is called Puseyism for a great many years. P-U-S-E-Y. 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 Edward Bouverie Pusey. Uh, and he's, he's sometimes referred to in the 19th century as the most hated priest in all of England, which I just think is a, it's really sad. But, I mean, at the same time, the dude was a jerk. I mean, he really was. Like, he, he, was, he, he had no personal manner about him at all. He was just really, you know, anyway. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, um, where was I going with this? Oh, yes. So, uh, so Pusey is really the chief character. And, in fact, if you go to Neshota House, you, you've never heard of Neshota House yeah. Seminary? Okay, they have a bar on campus. And if you, if you, uh, if you uh, I forget, maybe it's the coffee shop. I can't remember because it, it seems odd to me that you would take a drink to go. But if you take a drink to go, and w- whether it's a bar or a coffee shop, it's called a Newman because the Newman left and became Roman Catholic. And if you, if you have it to stay, it's called a Pusey. It's really bad. Again, so many bad church jokes tonight. But I just love doing this stuff, you know? I mean... Yeah, that's very bad. Anyway, okay. All right, so the, the Oxford movement is so-called because it happens uh, among a series of divines and, and actually at the, at the University of Oxford, uh, including John Keeble, uh, Edward Pusey, as I mentioned. Pusey's kind of the champion of the movement, and then uh, John Henry Newman, who becomes 
Roman Catholic and, and the most famous cardinal, Roman Catholic cardinal of the 19th century. Uh, and his influence is tremendous on Vatican II, the most recent Roman Catholic ecumenical council. Okay, so uh, this, this movement, is a, um, it begins by, uh, by condemning, so it's called, also called Tractarianism because it proceeds by a series of tracts. They're called the Tracts for the Times, and they're basically addressing very specific issues within the life of the church. And there's 90 of these tracts that get issued between the period 1833 to 1845. So this is the basis for this kind of Catholic, Catholic revival that happens. Um, you know, the, first, the first tract is called On National Apostasy, which is like, I mean, about as, about as biting and condemnatory as you can get. But John Keeble says, look, the, the Christian church has to be independent of the state. Like, the state cannot control the church. And in England, the C of E is controlled by Parliament. Like, and that's what's happening. And so the church needs to regain its independence. And, and like, if only the bishops would rise to the challenge, the church would once again, you know, be the, you know, the, the bright morning star of the world. Okay, so national, on national policy begins this movement. But then as it picks up steam, it's like more and more things. It's like, oh, yeah, and here's, here's one of the indications of that. We don't fast anymore. So there's a big tract on fasting, right? A big tract on confession and penance. A big tract on, you know, all these different Catholic practices, right? Um, and then it ends on track 90, famously, this last, last tract with John Henry Newman saying, well, you know, the articles, you know, they're, they're, they're not ambitious of a Catholic reading, but they are patient of it. That's his, that's his framing of it. Uh, and so they can be read as being kind of sympathetic to the Council of Trent. And everybody flips out. You know, it's like, no, <laughs> you know, this is terrible. Uh, so every, what everybody suspected to be true is ultimately, he kind of is declaring to be true in Track 90. Okay. Um, but, you know, all kinds of really interesting things happen as a result of this. If you had gone into any... Um, major church in the 19th century in England, what you would see is a sort of a Spartan layout, right? There's no images on the walls. It's all whitewashed. Uh, it's, a, it's a simple table rather than a, um, uh, than an alt, a stone altar. And it's not, so, you know, you have a, usually you have a cruciform church building, church, uh, uh, cruciform nave. Um, and the, the table is not back in the chancel, right? It's, it's, it's right in the middle of those two transepts as they meet the the north-south axis and the east-west, oh, sorry, the north-south axis and the east-west axis, axis uh, it's right there in the middle. Okay, so this is a Reformation layout, okay? So as a result of this Catholic revival, like most churches now have the altar table, which may be wood or it could be stone, and it's all the way in the back of the chancel. Um, it has, it's railed, right? So, you know, uh, suggesting that the proper posture um, in coming to the Eucharist is kneeling. Uh, there's, there's, uh, you know, lush images. We have stained glass windows with images in them. Uh, you know, there's the, the reappearance of rood screens, which are, which are the screens that if you go into any Orthodox church, that the iconostasis is a kind of rood screen. Uh, Catholic churches also have this as well. But anyway, all these different, you know, liturgical accoutrements you know, come back into existence, right? Like the, the thurible comes back and the incense and, you know, like bishops are wearing miters again all of a sudden. And, you know, like the, the, the chasuble comes back. Um, you know, what the Puritans called the chasuble. The devil's cape. <laughs> oh, man. You know, it's so silly now in retrospect. But, you know, but there you go. Uh, it was a big deal back then. Um, but the chasuble comes back and, and all these different vestments come back. Um, so and then there's a movement, uh, that, an architectural movement that emerges out of the Catholic revival called the Camden Association. And uh, so one of the things that had become really important is that, is that Christianity develops its own architectural styles. Okay. So, like, most importantly uh, is the basilica in the in the uh, the fourth century, which is adopted as the main kind of architectural form of the of of uh, Christian churches. Because actually, in the fourth century, the basilica is a town hall. So, 
this is important, right? You, you think about how the Bible describes the church, the ecclesia, right? What is the ecclesia? Anybody know? Well, it's the assembly, right? It's the same word for assembly in, in the, uh, the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. But it has a specific meaning in the Greco-Roman context. Whenever you have a democratic assembly of the people to decide a particular issue, that's the ecclesia. So, so when Paul uses that term to describe the church, he's saying like, remember this, like in 1 Corinthians 6, right? It's a huge thing to him. He says, hey, hey, like, why are you bringing lawsuits to the magistrate? Don't you know that you are the ones who are going to judge angels? Like he's saying, you are the people of God who, who stands in judgment. Like you, you, you are like judging the world, right? Uh, you are this assembly that does that work. Um, so the basilica and its adoption as the primary architectural style is a kind of enshrinement of that vision of what the church actually is, okay? So that's, that's important. So the basilica form becomes important for the Camden movement, but above all, it's the, 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 the Gothic form that appears in the, medieval, in the medieval period that becomes normative for the Camden movement. And so you have this huge flowering of neo-Gothic architectural styles that, uh, and, you know, look around you, hey? Um, so ascension is a, uh, a product in some ways, in an indirect way, of this, uh, of this liturgical revival that happens as a result of... Um, of uh, the the Oxford movement. Okay, so um, yeah, so the so the Anglo Anglo Catholicism has its inception in the Oxford movement, but it uh, but it, it continues on. It, it it kind of echoes outward and its influence in, in a number of different clergy clergy people clergymen. It's just clergymen at that time, um, and it's it's emphasis upon the practices of you know fasting and. Um, you know, confession, all these other things that are that are more Catholic in their orientation become normative for these these different churches and these different clergy that adopt this posture. Uh, but above all, it's a it's a, um, a a doubling down, a recommitment to the Articles' understanding of the of the presence of Christ in the Eucharist and baptism. Okay, so all of the debates that happen around um, Catholicism are really ultimately about that question and about bishops. It's about really about bishops, and it's about uh, it's about baptism and Eucharist. Um, so, you know, there's a, a famous text that came out in 1886 by a priest named Fred Jewell, The Special Beliefs and Objects of Catholic Churchmen. Guess what this is about? This is entirely about the Eucharist and baptism. Um, he says, we, we revolt from every semblance of the common and painful ignorance and misbelief which make the sacraments, baptism and the Holy Eucharist, mere forms or ceremonies, outward and visible signs with no inward spiritual grace or substance. Um, and then he goes on to say, you know, that Christ's presence is, is a genuine presence. Uh, we, we, uh, he says, recognizing no such gross material presence of our blessed Lord in the Holy Eucharist as, of tran as transubstantiation, according to the popular notion implies, and revolting from the still more painful Protestant opposite, the miserable product of the memorial supper theory, which admits only a material presence of bread and wine and an immaterial subjective presence in memory alone of the original sacrifice as a mere thought in memory, a mere notional presence with the real absence, right? He's, he, so the, the, the Catholic thing is really about like, hey, Christ is really, truly, objectively present in the Eucharist and in baptism. Uh, that's for real. It's not a, you know, wishful thinking or, uh, you know, a mere memory of that which has transpired long ago in the past. It's a present participation in the once for all sacrifice of Christ. And then he, and then he goes on to say, uh, the faithful do truly commune with him and do verily, though after a sacramental manner, receive his body and blood under the sacred species of the bread and wine. But the manner of the presence is a mystery, right? So, like, again, like, it's, he's not materially present, he's sacramentally present. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. 
I mean, it's a mystery, but it's really present. Like somehow the Holy Spirit makes Jesus present to us as we assemble faithfully. Okay, so what's really interesting about the Catholic Churchmen is that they, they are trying to embody this Anglican middle way, right? So none of the Catholics, so one of the, one, again, one of the sort of Reformation protests against the Catholic Church was these private masses, right? You could pay to have a mass said in your memory so that you could have time taken off purgatory because mass is regarded as a good deed. So if you built up a sufficient number of these by paying a priest to say them, uh, in, you know, in a crypt, right, like over you essentially, like you could have time off of purgatory, and the Reformation is like, no. <laughs> so one of the great sort of like Anglican, uh, I, I think, uh, Angli- Anglican um, movements away from that is that you never celebrate the Eucharist unless there's people there to celebrate it with, right? We, this, is, this is, communion is the union of the body with the head. Like that's what we're doing every single time we receive the Eucharist. And so the communion between all of us is as important as the communion with the head, which is why like, you know, we, we have this... Um, moment where we fence the table, right? And we have this moment where we say the peace, right? But that's not, that's not a sort of like a moment. It's like a break in the, the liturgy in order to sort of like greet one another. Like that's kind of what it feels like sometimes, but it actually has a profound liturgical meaning, which is that like, hey, if you've got a problem with anybody else, like leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled before you come to the altar and receive the Eucharist. So, you know, again, one of the, one of those Reformation bishops, Hugh Latimer, preaches this sermon where he says, um, he says, um, you, you need to experience the Eucharist frequently. Like frequent communion is absolutely indispensable. But if you have something against your brother, don't come. Like go be reconciled first and then come. Um, so this, this, is, this, continues to, this continues to be prevalent in Anglicanism as a whole. And the, the Catholic Anglicans differentiate themselves from Rome in the sense that they, they refuse to perform private masses. They just don't, they won't do it. Um, so it's, it's, it's less like a return to a kind of like you know, pre-Anglican Roman Catholicism, and more a recovery of what I think is actually the genuine scriptural vision of what communion and baptism actually are. Okay, um, let me just talk about one more of these church parties, which is the modernistic church party, sometimes called the liberal church party, but I don't like that term. Uh, And this is, uh, so Anglicanism has always had this, again, a value for a learned ministry, learned uh, learned forms of Christianity. Um, And that hardens, again, in the 19th century into a party. There's like a sect that's devoted to modernizing Christian belief. Uh, and, and this happens first as a result of the higher criticism of the Bible that comes into existence in Germany in the 19th century. So this is an attempt to understand the Bible as a purely natural human production, okay? So it's like you, you have to, you, you, the way that you investigate it is you assume as an axiom that God is not involved in the production of this artifact. Like this is a purely human production, an interesting one, right? But it's, it's a, hu- a purely human production. So you have to assume there's no such thing as prophecy, right? Because that would imply some kind of divine providence superintending the course of history and of the production of this document. Uh, you can't have miracles. The miraculous is right out, right? Uh, altogether. Uh, because that, again, implies divine causation uh, in, the, in the material order. Um, so once you have ruled out prophecy and uh, miracles, it's kind of hard to like actually affirm the Bible, in its present form. <laughs> so what, what you're really left doing is trying to figure out how did it come, to, come into being. So you posit all of these different um, theories for its composition. Um, or, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're a, a, a genuinely a believer who is, gets invested in higher criticism, you begin to think about, like, well, how does God work through, like, ordinary psychology in order to produce these things? So, like, prophecy gets reduced to psychology. It's a special form, like, and it's related in, in a sense to, like, you know, kind of artistic genius, right? Like, you know, Tennyson 
is kind of like similar, or Shakespeare is similar in his um, uh, the, the the attunement that he has to the divine as a prophet might be, right? It's kind of a, a spiritual genius, as it were. So you, you get theories like this that come that come down the pike. Um, so higher criticism is one feature of the modernistic party that's 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 embraced. Uh, another is is uh, Darwinism, right? So you know, again, um, uh, the, the the way that you tend to investigate things in higher criticism is you assume an evolutionary understanding of religion. Okay, so religion proceeds from simpler, lesser forms, primitive forms to more advanced and developed forms. Okay, so that you, what you what you have to assume is that what comes first is a kind of like rough draft of that which is coming later, right? So, um, you know, you, you can see this reflected in the writings of a contemporary. Someone like James D.G. Dunn, okay, he assumes that, uh, that initially in Scripture what we see is, a, is an affirmation of Christ as a kind of great man, right? Like Christ is, Christ is a man attested by God. It does say that in the Scripture about Jesus and Mark. Um, but he's not divine. He's not regarded as divine. That's a later innovation, right? Um, and someone like Bart, Bart Ehrman has the same perspective on it. Um, you know, there's, there's other people who are more more kind of orthodox in a sense, but you know, but but still have the same evolutionary perspective on things. Like Larry Hurtado proclaims that uh, you know the initial worship of the church was binitarian. It was you know father son worship, not trinitarian, not fully trinitarian. Uh, that comes later. That's a fourth century thing. Um, yeah, I, I don't buy that. You know, I mean, like I, I don't see why why we have to assume that that's the way. Like the natural pattern of of human interactions has to be the way that God decisively enters human history. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, so, but, but uh, you know, the, the, the principal form that evolution takes uh, in terms of a, an overarching theory in the 19th century is Darwinism, okay? So, um, so you know, you, you find a number of these, uh, a number of these uh, modernistic Anglicans who begin affirming Darwinism as a, as a way of understanding social relationships. So uh, the fact that you're on top means that you're more fit than those who are around you, right? Like you kind of get what you deserve, right? You get, and so uh, there's a, a, one of the, a famous Anglican priest who became a professor uh, in, the, in the 19th century, a modernistic Anglican priest named William, uh, I think it's William Green Sumner or William Sumner Green. I forget which, which, which is the ordering of the last two names. But uh, he, he's like one of the first social Darwinists, right? Um, and if you think about Darwinism as a theory, actually, uh, most most ultra Darwinians are social progressives, right? But it actually doesn't make much sense given the way the theory works. So you, you're looking at nature to kind of imitate its patterns as a way of like understanding social relationships. I mean, social Darwinism makes a lot of sense under that under that rubric. So the modernistic Anglicans in the 19th century tend to be social Darwinians as well. Uh, lastly, paradoxically, is the social gospel. Okay, so uh, this is a party that's differentiated among itself. I mean, they all kind of assume the higher criticism, but the social gospel uh, is the belief that Christianity must be socialized. In other words, it, it needs to become the pattern or basis for organizing human societies. So, uh, whatever patterns we see in the early community in Acts, right, those need to become normative for uh, for society as a whole. So, massive Im- impetus upon breaking up of of the the big you know gilded age trusts. Uh, massive imp- imp- uh, impetus placed upon redistribution of wealth and other things like this uh, that become keynotes of um, modernistic um, Anglicans in the 19th century and into the early 20th. Okay, uh, any questions on any of that so far? Oh, yeah, lots of them, yeah, okay. One question, yeah. is there any kind of geographic or socioeconomic distribution of these different sects? That's really interesting, yeah, there actually is, um, and, but I'm not sure why, why it's significant. So the, moder- the, the modernistic folks... Um, 
I mean, in other words, I don't understand why why it should have fallen out the way it did. Okay. Um, but the evangelicals are highly concentrated in Virginia and the South. So Southern Anglicanism is the highly. No, 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 no. The evangelicals. Did I say, oh, yes. I say the modernists. The low, the yeah, the, the low the low church folks. Uh, yeah, they're they're mostly Southerners. Um, the the Anglo Catholics come out of General Theological Seminary in New York. So, oh yeah, so um, John Henry Hobart is like the key bishop for that. So uh, anyway, they, uh, they're, they're mostly in the north. Um, and then uh, interestingly, so as Anglicanism grows in the 19th century, they appoint missionary bishops. There's a guy named Jackson Kemper who founds the Neshota House, actually, uh, and he's a hardcore Anglo-Catholic. Um, so he brings, he brings uh, Anglo-Catholicism to the Midwest. So there's a big, there's a, used to be a term called the Beretta Belt. Anybody ever heard that? Anybody who's like a cradle Anglican ever heard of the Beretta Belt? Okay. All right. Anyway, Wisconsin. Wisconsin is like the Beretta Belt. Okay. So anyway, uh, that's like high church, really high church, by the way. Beretta is like a, you know, a fancy, a fancy hat that high, high church Anglicans would wear. It's, it's, it's buffoonish. I'll be honest. Uh, anyway. And then, uh, you know, the, the, the modernists are associated with cities like Chicago, uh, New York, um, yeah. Places like that. Yeah. Would you like to enlarge upon your dislike of the term liberalism? liberalism? Oh, yeah. I just feel like it's not very descriptive. I mean, you know, ultimately the word liberal, um, so the word liberal, like, it's bequeathed to us by kind of Lockean philosophy, and it means one thing in that context, which is namely a kind of, and it's laissez-faire economics, uh, or we might call them like neoclassical economics, um, uh, and then it becomes associated with progressivism, which is unhelpful, you know. So, uh, and and, uh, and like applied to church bodies, it's even it's even like more amorphous. It just kind of means like, you know, uh, I mean, I, I guess unfaithfulness, I guess. Uh, but, but that's like not very helpful because there's ways in which the church does need to be liberal, right? I mean, like there there's like the influences of the arts, the influences of the sciences, um, you know, uh, things that we need to to actually have a certain discerning openness to. So I, I don't want to use it with regard to this party because um, it actually doesn't describe their project. Their project is to modernize belief or modernize doctrine. Um, it's old-fashioned yeah. modernism. Right, exactly. Like the modernism that was the, the, like the antithetical corollary to fundamentalism. Yes, yeah. post-modern, uh, post-World uh, War II modernism. Yeah, yeah. So you put the social gospel as a subset of modernism. Yeah, definitely. The particular way it shakes out, when you look at you know those, those figures like Washington Gladstone and um, uh, Walter Rauschenbusch, uh, these are folks that uh, they, they accepted the higher criticism just like the social Darwinists did, but they took it in a radically different direction, right? And they said, like, the, the, the normative paradigm for understanding society is acts, right? There's a really interesting book that came out a couple of years ago by Jody Bottom called An Anxious Age, and he says, like, he, he, he attributes the decline of the mainline church to, the, to its very success, and actually incarnating the social gospel. It's like the institution itself no longer is necessary because we've accomplished our aims out there in society. Uh, it's an interesting book. Anyway. Um, okay. Um, any other questions about any of that so far? Okay. Where are we at time-wise? Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Um, all right. So real quick. Um, <laughs> Uh, I talked about how the, the, how the, what, what happens in the United States becomes the basis for the Anglican Communion, okay? Uh, and that's because what happens in America first, uh, really, I guess Scotland first, but then, but then in America, is that you have a church that's jurisdictionally separate from, from the English church, but it shares all of these values and 
practices and artifacts with that church, right? A history, a shared history and a shared tradition. Uh, so that becomes the way in which the whole thing ends up shaking out, right? So like as different provinces are formed, as countries become independent, different provinces are formed that are, that basically presuppose that, you know, there's an Anglican church that's unique to each country, okay? So each province is associated with, with a different country. So first Canada and then South Africa and, you know, and Lots of, I forget what the next one is after South Africa, but um, ultimately that becomes the pattern for, for all the different churches that have come. And as the English Empire is, uh, the British Empire is dis- successively dismantled after the Second World War, um, all of these different, especially African provinces come into existence, right? So, um, and, and those, those end up becoming the most vibrant places in the Anglican world, but only after they indigenized, essentially a- after Anglicanism became an indigenous form that could actually be, uh, could be understood within the cultural context of those different provinces, did Anglicanism become like the, the profound influence that it has become. So, you know, I mean, there's a great uh, book that just came out a couple years ago called The Wiley Blackwell Companion to the Anglican Communion. And uh, there's an essay in there by the, um, by the Nigerian bishop uh, ben, ben Kwashi, who's the, who's the bishop of uh, Joss in northern Nigeria. This guy lives just an, lives an awe-inspiring and also like, you know, cha- like incredibly challenging life for all of us. So he's, he, you know, he lives in a deeply contested area, mostly Muslim. Uh, he's had a number of churches firebombed, clergy killed, kidnapped, all that kind of stuff. He lives in a giant palace with 54 orphans with his wife. Like that's, that's what, they, that's their ministry. That's what they do is take care of orphans. Cause he's like, I read the Bible. You know what I mean? That's what it says I'm supposed to be doing. Taking care of orphans. So that's what he does. Like just astonishing numbers of them. So uh, anyway, these are, these have become the places of, of the greatest, like, you know, vibrancy in the whole Anglican world. And they are fully African, you know, uh, these churches are fully Nigerian or fully Kenyan, fully Ugandan, um, but they are deeply Anglican. They, 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 are, they, they worship with the prayer book. Uh, they worship with the liturgy. They share the tradition and practices and artifacts of the Anglican world. So they're, they're recognizably Anglican. I mean, if you went to one of these churches, it would feel very different. I mean, it would feel far more charismatic in a sense but, um, than Ascension is, but, uh, but, it, but it would be recognizably Anglican. Okay, so this is how the Anglican communion comes into existence. It's piecemeal um, as countries come into existence or, or, or Anglicanism moves to a different country, uh, different provinces are established. They're all related to each other by a series of um, instruments of communion, they're called. The first one is the Archbishop of Canterbury. So the Archbishop of Canterbury has no authority over any, over any uh, of these provinces at all. But it's sort of like, he's a figurehead. Like he's a person that we look to for inspiration, right? Um, although that's that's in decline. I mean, honestly. Um, so uh, there's there is a bit of a crisis in the Anglican Communion right now, uh, which we can talk about uh, very briefly. Uh, I'm going to skip over the Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral uh, because it is an ecumenical document that was drafted by William Reed Huntington. It's it's it is important in the life of Anglicanism. But basically, what it stipulates is that there are there are four things that we regard as necessary for union with another church, right? If a church will profess these four things, we can see how we could be in union with, the, or in communion with that church. Uh, the, New, the New Testament and the Old Testament is the word of God. The apostles and the Nicene creeds as sufficient statements of faith. Baptism and Eucharist as dominical sacraments. And the historic episcopate adapted to local circumstances. So the, the episcopate can look different in different contexts, right? Um, like, for instance, you know, if the Presbyterians wanted to elect a bishop, uh, who was simply the head pastor of their church. Like there, there's a circumstance where you could imagine that being compatible with Anglican polity, actually. Um, all right. So uh, 
Uh, last couple things, decay in the Western churches and GAFCON and the growth of, of African churches. I've already talked a little bit about the African churches, so I'm going to leave it there, except to say this. Scott Sunquist, who's a, a contemporary missiologist, wrote an amazing book, which I recommend to all of you, called The Unexpected Christian Century. So the, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a conference in Edinburgh, the World, the, uh, World Mission Conference in 1910, uh, and it was declared, this will be the Christian century. And what they meant was, like, in the West, right? Like, this is going to be the Christian century. And on the basis of that conference, you know, the periodical, the Christian century, came into existence. Uh, but, of course, it was the Christian century, but not at all in the way that anyone suspected, which is that... Basically, Christianity balloons in the global south and it declines in the west, pretty dramatically in some cases. Um, like, do you guys know that, uh, I think it's the Czech Republic, 10% of people profess to be Christians? Yeah. Like, wow. Um, okay, so um, Sunquist says this, in 1900, about 80% of the Christians in the world lived in Europe or North America, but by 2000, only 37% did. At the end of the first decade of the 21st century, Christianity was nearly two-thirds a non-Western, a majority non-Western, world religion. This shift took place beginning in the 1960s. No world religion has ever shifted its center so dramatically in human history. It's eye-popping. Here's another statistic that he cites. Africa went from being a 9% Christian uh, continent to being 45% Christian in a century. I mean, one century. That's, that's eye-popping. Mostly sub-Saharan. So, uh, and then some, and, you know, I say some, some of the most courageous Christian leaders in the world are now living in Africa. I've already mentioned, uh, you know, the, the uh, most reverend Benjamin Kwashi, who's the Archbishop of Joss. Um, he's really inspirational to me. Um, but, but yeah, but some of the most important and courageous Christian leaders are, are living in Africa or in Latin America or in East Asia at this point. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, you know, we'll see you next week. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.